BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Jeffrey Lundgren, diving into the second of our two-part series on this crazy cult leader this week. Uh, today, things incredibly get even weirder and darker than they did last week. This week, we get into more sexual debauchery and murder. Prophet Jeffrey takes his godly claims further. He'll have a, a lot more visions this week. He'll go full, mature cult leader and start taking extra wives. He'll test the tolerance of his followers time and time again as he leads them further and further away from any semblance of a normal life. And then it will all come crashing down and so many lives will be permanently destroyed. And to give anything else away would be to spoil too many, are you serious? Surprises. The wild and darkly entertaining conclusion to the Kirtland cult killings and Jeffrey Lundgren right now on this cult. Cult, cult edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks, and welcome back to the Cult of the Curious. I feel confident saying welcome back because what are the odds that this is your first episode? If it is, well, you fucked up. What are you doing? Go back to last week and start there, please. This episode will just not hit the same if you don't listen to part one. I'm Dan Cummins, a suck master, scat play kink shamer, modern profit denier, doomsday ignorer, action figure, jingle songbird, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise be to Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. When you hear this, the Burn It All Down theater tour will have ended. Thank you to anyone who came out to the shows, just finished shows as I record this in Pontiac, not quite Detroit, Michigan, and Indianapolis, Indiana. Thanks to Indy for the sellout. Pontiac, we came close. Uh, Both nights, so much fun. And now starting over, building a new hour of material as fast as possible. Uh, Looking forward to it. Starting in Phoenix, April 21st and 22nd at Stand Up Live. 
uh, working on so many new ideas. May 4th, 5th, and 6th in Bloomington, Indiana at the uh, a very um, intimate Comedy Attic Comedy Club. And then May 11th, 12th, and 13th in Madison, Wisconsin at Comedy On State. Let's go. Uh, links to all those tickets at dancummins.tv. It is April now. Spring is in the air. So we have something different in the store. Hawaiian button-up shirts. That's right. Uh, you've got two patterns to choose from. Time Suck Throwback or Tropical Killer Time Suck Throwback. Uh, featuring a very 90s feeling pattern with lots of electric blue, pink, and yellow. If Time Suck had a bowling alley or arcade, this would definitely be our carpet. Tropic Killer, traditional floral-based design featuring 12 of the most gruesome killers we've covered on Time Suck. But it is, it is uh, workplace approved. It's subtle. Uh, these are hand cut and sewn, so please allow a couple extra weeks delivery on these. Head on over to badmagicmerch.com. You can check them out, the new Time Suck button-ups. And a quick note from Logan, the Art Warlock. Uh, good news, we were able to go up to 5X on these because they're handmade. We just had another conversation with our main supplier about 4X and 5X sizes in the store for normal t-shirts. Trying very hard to add those back into the selection. We appreciate your patience. If you're not aware, we moved from pre-printing all of our designs to a vast majority of them being printed when you order, which limits our selection on larger sizes, but hoping to roll out a solution very soon. And now, uh, back to Jeffrey Don Lundgren. Knock off Prophet Jeffrey, the poor man's Brigham Young. Or maybe the really fucking demented, especially sexually deviant, extra unstable, and murderous man's Brigham Young. After uh, a brief summary of what we covered last episode, we'll just dive right back into the timeline today. Buckle up. In many ways, this is the far darker of the two episodes. Uh, For years, Jeffrey skated by on the kindness of strangers, mostly his in-laws and church charities before he could gather a small group of people to be part of his scriptural study group of sorts that would become an incubator for his future cult where there would be a lot less studying and a lot more. Listen to what Jeffrey Lundgren tells you to believe. Cult, cult, cult. Alice Lundgren would help in all of this, taking followers under her wing, having them call her mom, convincing them that Jeffrey was the real deal, the real prophet that Joseph Smith had predicted, not that fake-ass Brigham Young motherfucker. No, Prophet Jeffrey was the truth that the RLDS church had long said was still to come. The righteous man who would redeem Zion. By 1988, where we left off last week, Jeffrey had a loyal group of followers living on a compound. And now Jeffrey was emboldened enough to get into more insane shit, including but not limited to mass murder. Jeffrey will evolve uh, in this episode into a sort of inverted cult leader. Uh, while we normally expect cult leaders to escalate their deviant behavior, sexually and otherwise, over a period of time, maybe first in secrecy before straight up saying that God wants him to fuck people and then ending with some sort of big murderous event, similar to the Manson family murders or Jonestown or the Heaven Gate, Heaven's Gate suicides, this is not the case with Jeffrey. Instead, the murders take place before some of the weirder sexual shit. And probably bad reference with Heaven's Gate since there was no sexual shit. They were very uh, strongly asexual, actually. Uh, It will not be until after some blood sacrifices are made that Jeffrey will become a full-on sex-crazed cult leader. Yes, as we learned last week, he was already sexually deviant. Well, this week, he takes his deviancy outside the bounds of his marriage and spreads it around to some of his lucky followers. After some sacrifices, uh, they will literally head out into the woods, and once there, Jeffrey will take advantage of their guilt, sleeplessness, and hunger to pressure some of the women of the group into uh, doing certain things. And I won't share anything more about that other than to say, remember the phrase, magical vagina. Just like last week, don't want to spoil too much. Certain surprises were the most darkly entertaining elements of the story for me. I want you to enjoy them as well. Uh, Sad, sad Alice, I will say that she will suffer even more this week. 
She will pay an increasingly harsh price for ignoring, oh, so many red flags early on, for deluding herself into thinking some random dipshit was going to be the prophet that some summer camp patriarch told her was coming along. Uh, I'm guessing you expected her to uh, to do that this week, as I did. Uh, as we get into all of this again, I do wonder, was Jeffrey insane? Did he actually believe he truly was a prophet? Or was he simply bilking people out of their money and stroking his ego and getting his rocks off? Did this cult leader believe his own bullshit? Or was it all a ruse? Did Alice Lundgren truly believe her husband was a prophet? Or did she just want to be the wife of someone others believe to be powerful? Was she helping Jeffrey things primarily to hoping to fulfill her own ambitions or mostly to be a dutiful wife and support his ambitions and, you know, and or delusions? Diving back into the strange world of Jeffrey Lundgren, in which his teachings only get more insane and ridiculous, including his claims to actually, uh, you know, being a god right now. Picking up today where uh, we left off, as I said, after a little summary of what we covered so far. Last episode, we looked at how Jeffrey Lundgren grew up in an RLDS community. Born in 1950, he grew up at a time where kids across America were expressing their individuality as he grew into his teen years. The swinging 60s would soon be underway. Uh, The freedom-focused and anti-establishment 70s would be, uh, you know, underway when he was a very young man. But Jeffrey would choose to not take part in the counterculture movement. No sex, drugs, and rock and roll for this guy. Well, there was sex, but not a lot of free love hippie sex. Not that we know about. More of a, an affair or two at work, a bunch of, uh, you know, I, I poop, my, poop on my wife a lot at home kind of sex. Now, Lundgren grew up attending an RLDS congregation in the Slover Park neighborhood of Independence, Missouri, where he wasn't all that interested in religion. His parents, strict religious parents who very much cared about keeping up with the Joneses and sure didn't seem emotionally nurturing on any level, but also not necessarily abusive, expected him to go to church, and he did. After getting out from under their thumbs, Jeffrey would briefly attend Central Missouri State University, where he would first meet and then completely control Alice Keeler, soon to be Alice Lundgren. Alice was susceptible to the nicely dressed young man who made her feel special, a camp counselor, uh, you know, of sorts, a member of her church. It told her that she would one day marry a man who would go on to do something amazing for the RLDS church. Uh, And then she felt that man was Jeffrey. What Alice didn't know about her walking red flag of a boyfriend who told her what to wear and walked her to all of her classes within 48 hours of their first date, a man who would ask her to marry him after dating for a whole week, was that Jeff was flunking all of his classes and rarely, if ever, showed up to those classes, preferring to spend his time in either the RLDS house or with Alice. And with Alice sometimes included staring at her through the fucking window while she was in class like a serial killer. But then when she did know what he was up to, instead of breaking up with him, she felt that she needed to quickly marry him or she would lose him. She would lose this, God, this catch of a guy. And within a few months, she was pregnant after trying to get pregnant. And now faced with disapproval from his parents, the couple moved in with Alice's incredibly enabling parents. They will now struggle for money uh, for years, including during Jeffrey's stint in the Navy. Even when Jeffrey was getting a steady paycheck, the man would not allow his wife to even touch the family checkbook. And he was being completely financially irresponsible. Then this weirdo gets deployed on a ship that heads to the Gulf of Tonkin in late 1972. The ship gets fired on, but never hit. And this megalomaniac who had spent all his free time reading the Book of Mormon comes to believe that the reason the enemy fire did not land a single hit on his ship was because that God was protecting him. Not the entire crew. No, just Jeffrey. He was that important, that special. God had big plans for him. Jeffrey would even claim to have had a strange vision of a dark cloud attacking him on the ship. 
tried to throw him overboard. And that cloud obviously was Satan. And it could not knock him overboard because his faith in God was too strong. And again, God had two important of plans for him. Back in Missouri, after the Navy, Jeffrey and Alice quickly got involved with the RLDS again, with Jeffrey becoming a sort of spokesperson for the conservative RLDS faction, which opposed liberalizing efforts like allowing women into the priesthood. Jeffrey would start holding meetings in his apartment where he would give his unique interpretation of scripture. Uh, I, Jeffrey, can see things that no one else can see. Uh, Here he would meet future cult members, Dennis and Tanya Patrick, as well as Dennis and Cheryl Avery. Uh, But the Lundgrens still faced financial troubles. Jeffrey liked to secretly spend his money on porn and guns and who knows what else. And he kept getting fired from, you know, many of his jobs for stealing money. And Jeffrey was soon causing other kinds of trouble for his family as well, like forcing Alice to engage in strange and demeaning sexual acts with his own feces. And if you really, really want to get uh, shit on, I guess by all means, indulge yourself and become a human toilet. But this is not what Alice wanted. She accepted it as opposed to uh, chose it. She put up with it to stick by the side of the great and important and almost always unemployed Jeffrey. And then when Alice protested a different sexual act, Jeffrey responded by having an affair with a coworker. When he came back, Alice felt like she had no choice but to go along with whatever her husband wanted. She did have a choice. Could have left this uh, terrible dude and stayed with the parents who clearly were up for helping her out since they were helping her anyway, and Jeffrey. But, uh, you know, she stayed with him. She followed the teachings of her church to be a submissive and obedient wife. Meanwhile, Jeffrey continued to keep getting fired from jobs, mainly for stealing, it seems, not paying bills, driving the family even deeper into debt. While working his last paying job as a salesman of medical equipment, Jeffrey would meet James Robbins, a man who told him about a Mormon concept called living in common endeavor. This was basically the Mormon version of a commune and James Robbins hoped that it would help him grow spiritually away from the influence of his uh, success and money. Oh, James, you could have just volunteered at the soup kitchen or given to charity, but no, you had to get tangled up with Jeffrey. Lundgren, after bizarrely claiming that he had cured Robbins' cancer, would part ways with James after taking two grand and doing nothing in return, except tell him he cured his cancer, of course. Soon after his bullshit curing cancer claim, Even if James' cancer did go into remission, there's no fucking way this dipshit had anything to do with it. Uh, Jeffrey would claim to have visions of being given golden plates by God, the same as Joseph Smith had, except these plates revealed some new knowledge, knowledge he said that the church couldn't be trusted with because they'd fuck things up too much already. Why introduce some new kind of prophecy when he can just rip off Joseph Smith? But you don't want to pay too much for the name Friend Prophet Why pay for Prophet Joseph when Prophet Jeffrey is half price? Do you want to get pooped on? Do you want to get pooped on? Yeah, you want to get pooped on? Uh, So in July of 1984, Jeffrey would announce that he had to move to Kirtland, Ohio, the place where Zion actually was, and it would be in Kirtland that this cult really kicked off. Recruiting people like Kevin Curry, Jeff's old Navy buddy, and some interns from the Kirtland Temple, the Lundgren convinced them to hand over their paychecks to Jeffrey to live in common endeavor, except really what they were doing was having others pay their way while they splurged on luxuries and didn't work. Gotta gotta get those red lobster cheddar biscuits. Uh, Prophets aren't supposed to work for anyone, Alice would explain. Uh, In Ohio, Jeffrey also began teaching his new followers about something he called the pattern based on the concept of chiasmus. People who believe in chiasmus basically look at the uh, select Old Testament books and diagram lines that repeat the content of other lines. 
A chiasm is the pattern by which these ideas get repeated, most often in the pattern A, B, B, A. Chiasmus was popular during the time of the Bible uh, when it was being written across various cultures, Hebrew, Greek, Latin among them. It showed balance and order and also helped make a convincing airtight argument. Basically, it was a trendy way of writing at the time. But in the context of religious interpretation, this old trend would take on new meaning for uh, some people, including Jeffrey and his followers. Some biblical scholars had found that there was often one line, usually the middle C line, if it was A, B, C, B, A, that wasn't repeated. This, according to some of them, was the most important line in the text. Now, most uh, people who interpret this stuff uh, say that the middle line doesn't really have anything to do with scriptural interpretation, but Jeffrey would take the opposite view. He would say that chiasmus allowed him to see the pattern by separating God's true words, which are always hidden in doubles, from the parts of the Bible added by man. He could see the real shit, and he started crossing out large biblical passages that were fake, that had no chiasmus, passages clearly written by man and not God. Jeffrey would claim that the world was full of secret chiastic messages, including in architecture. And this type of shit earned him an enemy in the form of Dale Luffman, a reverend who had become the RLDS stake president in the Kirtland area in January of 1986. Luffman thought that Lundgren wasn't only too opinionated, but that his opinions ran contrary to church doctrine and were driving away members and that he was uh, usurping his authority. Meanwhile, Jeffrey was gaining new members, Richard Brand, former interns, Danny and Sharon, Greg Winship, Ron and Susie Luff. He also contacts the Patricks and the Averys, tells them to move to Kirtland to be with him and his family, a family like, I don't know, the Manson family. All these people would end up financially supporting the Lundgrens. And in return, Jeffrey told them what to do, what to think, who they ought to be with, how to spend their own money, uh, what they should believe about religion, all justified in his bullshit readings of scripture and supposed visions he kept having. The RLDS, just like the LDS, big on visions, big on continuous revelation, a concept that allowed Jeffrey to not have his supposed visions be immediately mocked and shut down, but instead be realistically entertained by his congregation, something to be celebrated even. Finally, in the summer of 1987, Jeffrey would tell his followers that the apocalypse was coming soon. It was time to redeem Zion and bring forth a new and glorious millennium. He preached that in the final days before Jesus returning, a huge mountain would rise up underneath the Kirtland RLDS temple. Satan's army would then invade and the Lundgrens and their followers would need to fight them off, you know, to, to make sure that Jesus could get there be, before these guys ruined this, uh, this risen temple. And then they would need to help restore Jesus' kingdom. Uh, those of them who lived anyway, only a dozen, uh, you know, those of them who lived anyway would, would get to be part of Jesus, uh, his kingdom because only a dozen were gonna survive. A dozen new apostles From a five-bedroom farmhouse on the edge of Kirtland, Jeffrey and his followers now planned a temple takeover with Jeffrey telling them that they would have to, uh, uh, you know, do this to bring forth Zion. They would have to kill for God to bring forth paradise. He said their bloody takeover would go down on his birthday, May 3rd, and they planned to kill the Luffmans, Dale, his wife, and three kids by literally beheading them inside the temple. Kevin Curry would leave the group during this murderous planning, finally realizing that Jeffrey was a maniac and not a prophet and uh, a maniac who's about to come a mass murderer. And in April of 1988, after being ignored by the FBI, Kevin tipped off the Kirtland Police Department to the group's plans, telling them to Police Chief Dennis Yarborough, who believed that Jeffrey was indeed capable of what Kevin was describing. After then finding out that one of Jeffrey's kids had talked about the temple takeover with a neighbor, Yarborough figured he had to act fast. May 3rd was almost here. And all of that takes us up to May 1st, 1988, where we will reconnect with last week's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. 
As we mentioned in the previous timeline, on the night of May 1st, Chief Yarbrough and three of his officers staked out the temple in Kirtland. And nothing happened. Uh, They were there the next night, too. And again, nothing happened. Yarbrough hoped his talk had scared Jeffrey away, but he couldn't be certain. On the afternoon of May 3rd, Yarbrough and his men were still staking out the temple. They knew that if it was going to happen, it would happen that day. But the temple takeover was not to be. There had been a change of plans. Unbeknownst to Yarborough, Jeffrey had spoken to God again. Or more accurately, he told his followers that he had spoken to God. And well, God was not pleased enough with them yet to allow them to take over the temple. They still had sinned too much. And outside of Skidmark, I mean, Alice, they also hadn't been literally shit on enough. God was very clear in his vision. They all needed to be anointed in the fecal matter of God's one true prophet. Once they had all proven how humble they were, how little sinful pride and vanity they possessed, then and only then would Killer Christ return. Alice now told the group what spiritual tests Jeffrey had put her through over the years, how she was stronger and more faithful for it, holier even, praise be, maybe also a little stinkier, and sure, she'd maybe lost a bit of permanent vision from chronic pink eye infections, but still holier and more pure of spirit overall. And she agreed to show the rest of them the way. And she led them to the bathroom where she stripped down and waited to receive Jeffrey's special sacred sewer sacrament. And Jeffrey, then in front of his entire shocked covenant of adherence, he stood above his wife and disciple, kneeled down and gloriously released his celestial bowels. He'd been preparing for days, eating nothing but ham and cheese hot pockets, pizza bagel bites, milkshakes, coffee and scrambled eggs. He had to make sure he had enough sacrament to baptize his flock. Some witnesses gagged, others cried, at least one vomited, but none left. They were in too deep now. They'd come too far. And Jeffrey, beautiful, glorious Jeffrey, he now pounded more black coffee and glasses of milk. He gobbled down prunes and more eggs and red lobster, cheddar biscuits, and shrimp to make sure he had plenty of special sacrament to spread around. And by the end of the day, they had all been baptized in Prophet Jeffrey's heavenly shit. Praise be to Prophet Jeffrey, God's great defiler, God's chosen defecator, king shit himself. Hip, hip, hooray! Okay, maybe all that poop stuff didn't happen. Uh, But Jeffrey did tell them uh, there had been a change of plans. And they had sinned too much, and God was not going to come down and say hi on May 3rd, right? Because you idiots, you fucked it. Well, now Shar Olson, she finally wakes up from this fever dream. She realizes that Jeffrey is not a prophet, and she wants out. When she tells Jeffrey, he makes her sit in the middle of a circle as he, Alice, and Danny berate her. And eventually, Shar is so distraught, she apologizes and agrees to stay. And then something strange happens. Alice gets really irritated and now accuses Shar of staging the entire evening. She claims the real reason Shar wants to leave the group was because, in Alice's words, you're just horny. Did I mention that no one was allowed to have sex uh, at the cult farm unless they were married? Well, Shar was crushed. She knew sex had nothing to do with it, didn't know why Alice would go there. I'm so glad a lot of interviews were taken of these cult members. This nonsense is too good to lose to history. And then after all that, just a few days later, Jeffrey would tell Shar to get out. And she would. She'd leave packing her few belongings into a U-Haul. And the cult was now one person smaller. Uh, I wonder if Shar would have still been kicked out if she had been, uh, I don't know, making more money than somebody, uh, uh, you know, who worked a, as a, at a department store as a clerk did. Maybe she didn't bring a, a lot of value to the cult for Jeffrey. Maybe he wasn't eyeing her to be a future additional wife. I don't know. Now Alice and Jeffrey think it's just a matter of time before the followers start being straight up disobedient, before they lose more. They're worried their control is slipping. During the following months, the summer of 1988, Alice begins drinking heavily. She would stay up until 2 or 3 in the morning watching videotapes, sleep until 1 or 2 in the afternoon. She'd drink a beer before dinner, take a few Excedrin PM to get to sleep that night. Prophet Jeffrey's wife, King Shit's lady, Skidmark? 
What? Why is she doing this? This had to have raised a few eyebrows among the cult members. Why is she drinking? Well, I will say she had a pretty good reason. She was dealing with some new stress and pain. See, here's the deal. Prophet Jeffrey had recently decided that her vagina was too loose from having kids. So now he only wanted to have anal sex with her. <laughs> and at first, it wasn't too bad. She would say, like, this is so absurd. At first, he used lube. But then, you know, God's holiest earthly vessel decided that her own blood was the best lube. My God, that explains the Excedrin PM. And yet she still will think that this fucking sadist is a prophet. So that's happening. Meanwhile, the Averys are getting evicted. Jeffrey kind of sort of failed slash forgot to pay their bills like he said he would, even though they'd been giving him all their income. And he'd, you know, they'd also given him 10 grand in cash from their savings. <laughs> Mysterious ways, you know? Yeah, God's prophet's a liar. All right, get used to it, you filthy fucking swine. Uh, July 15th, 1988, the Avery's moved into a three-bedroom house that rented for $450 a month in Madison, 24 miles east of the farmhouse. They moved there with their three daughters, Trina, now 14, Becky, 12, and Karen, six. These poor kids. And then they stopped attending Prophet Jeffrey's Bible study and vision classes. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, Avery still felt attached to the Lundgrens. Cheryl Avery even listed, uh, listed Alice as her emergency contact, and Dennis always listed Jeffrey as a reference on job applications. So they're not quite out of this cult. In September, Jeffrey has great news for everybody. Uh, Skidmark's pussy is super tired again. Wow, <laughs> yay, celebrate. There's been a miracle. God is good. Uh, pounding her butthole with no lube and neglecting her vagina for months and months has somehow tuned back up again. It's almost as if his dick is a screwdriver and the screw that tightens up a pussy is in Alice's colon. Okay, maybe not that news, but he does have great news. He announces that he has used the pattern to discover a new revelation that indicated they didn't need to take over the Kirtland Temple to see God after all. So rejoice. There's another way to redeem Zion, children. Uh, to meet God without taking over the temple, Jeffrey said he'd have to become endowed with power. Oh, so, sorry, the quote is endowed with the power, which does sound cooler. He has to become endowed with the power. The way to do that was to kill the wicked and offer a human blood atonement sacrifice to God. After, after Jeffrey got the power, the group would then have to literally go out into the wilderness to purge themselves of sin. And then they get to meet God. Right, Jeffrey didn't know, you know, exactly where they would have to go, but he said, you know, God had shown. Oh, and there was one more tiny thing. The sacrifice couldn't be someone outside the group. Like Dale wouldn't recognize a real prophet even if he fucked him in the ass with no lube and shit on his tits, Luffman. No. Jeffrey said the only way for him to get the power was to sacrifice someone inside his own house. Cue a lot of cult members getting real sweaty and nervous. At first, he didn't let his group know who was getting sacrificed either. He just wanted to sweat it out. He just let them sit with that for a while, right? Got to keep those followers tense and anxious. Don't let them get bored. They might feel more inclined to leave. Meanwhile, throughout the summer, police chief Yarbrough continues investigating Jeffrey Lundgren. He'd stake out the property for hours, finding out where Jeffrey banked, where his followers worked, uh, you know, jotted down the models of the cars they drove, et cetera. None of them had criminal records, not outside of Jeffrey writing bad checks. And it seemed crazy to think that all of these generally law-abiding citizens could be involved in a murder plot, but Yarborough's still suspicious. Uh, excuse me, in August, uh, Yarborough realizes that the only thing he can change, uh, excuse me, charge Jeffrey Lundgren with is a zoning violation. But if they arrest him for having too many people living in the house, well, that'll make uh, surveillance harder going forward, so they, so they let it go. September 20th, Char Olson, now working as a waitress and hiding from Jeffrey, gets a call from Dale Luffman. He was conducting his own probe, he explained, because he wanted to get Jeffrey thrown out of the RLDS. And Shaw agreed to meet Luffman at a nearby Bob Evans restaurant. 
Oh, shit, yeah. Love me some Bob Evans. Uh, great banana bread. Uh, where she told him about the takeover. Leftman was shocked. He had no idea that there had been an active plot to kill him and his entire family. To have their fucking heads cut off in order to redeem Zion. Luffman immediately phoned Kirtland PD. Two days later, September 23rd, Shar agrees to meet with police officer Ron Andalisk. She told him everything she knew, even offered up a notebook from her classes with Jeffrey as proof. And the notebook had lists of military terms, instructions on how to use gas masks and more. A few weeks later, October 10th, Dale Luffman personally serves Jeffrey with excommunication papers. Must have felt good to do that face to face. He must also have been nervous as fuck. Probably worked uh, out some defense moves in his head, you know, just in case uh, Jeffrey tried to chop his head off. Jeffrey would have three days to reply to the uh, charges of teaching doctrine contrary to RLDS belief. God, that acronym does not roll off the tongue and getting people to quit the church. That night, Jeffrey would declare to his followers that it was time to make a human sacrifice and doing so would begin the process described in the book of Revelations, the end times. During the next few nights, Jeffrey led his followers on an incredible intricate trip through the Bible, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, all designed to lead them to the conclusion that Jeffrey is the herald of the end times, the prophet to help lead a small group of believers to usher in the second coming, and then, hot damn, Killer Christ and his army will rid the world of the wicked, wicked motherfuckers like Dale Luffman. He'd say he had six months to perform the human sacrifice until April of 1989, and now he starts asking the Averys to come back to the farm. And when they do, he gives them lessons about the wilderness, saying they're going to meet God. But interestingly, in front of the Averys, he never mentions human sacrifice. And before we go further, before things really ramp up, let's take a mid-show sponsor break. And then there won't be any more interruptions. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number 
along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks for listening to those sponsored deals. Please be sure and use my discount codes and landing pages so you uh, save money and our sponsors know you heard about them on this show. And now let's get back to the Lundgrens. He, uh, Jeffrey's just told his followers the Avery's must die. And now he's also made it onto the FBI's radar for his former plan to take over the Kirtland Temple and execute the Luffman family and others. On October 13th, the FBI officially gets involved in the investigation of Jeffrey Lundgren. Now, instead of going after him on charges of conspiracy to commit murder, a state offense, they decide to pursue different charges, possible violations of domestic security statutes and alleged violations of his followers' civil rights. But, uh, you know, because those were uh, federal crimes that fell under the purview of the FBI investigators. After speaking more with Shar, investigators put the farm under surveillance and they reconnect with former follower now in hiding, also uh, Kevin Curry in Buffalo. The FBI writes its first confidential report about Jeffrey, on February 24th, 1989. It concluded that Jeffrey was dangerous and was most likely planning to attack the temple back on May 3rd. But there just wasn't sufficient evidence to file charges against him. They didn't even have enough evidence to get a search warrant. So just like local police before them, they continued to watch and wait. 
Uh, by March, everyone in the group knows that the Averys will now be the human sacrifice Jeffrey spoke of. Everyone, everyone except the Averys, of course. We constantly talked about shedding of blood. Jeffrey's cousin, Debbie Oliver, uh, Olivares, later testified that it had to be done, that we were going to the wilderness. We were going to see God there. Uh, like with the plans for the temple takeover. Nothing is over. You just don't turn it off. Uh, Jeffrey started assigning his followers different roles in the murders. He sent Debbie and Greg to a local library to find out how hot a fire had to be in order to cremate a body. Guess he told them to be somewhat discreet doing that, not just walk in, ask the librarian, hey, uh, uh, where do you keep the books that uh, tell you how hot a fire has to be to burn a human body down to nothing but ash so you don't leave any evidence behind for investigators? Uh, at the time, Jeffrey was thinking about killing the Averys in their home in Madison and then setting their house on fire. But De- Debbie reported back that a house fire would not be hot enough to destroy incriminating evidence. I wonder why God didn't tell him that in one of his many visions. Why did, why did God make it so hard to help him with his godly plans? Why didn't, why didn't prophet Jeffrey already know that? Uh, Jeffrey then turned to Damon, telling him to get familiar with explosives. Right, good good job, son. Go get uh, familiar with explosives for this big final battle. Uh, Danny was asked to forge birth certificates in case the group decided to change their identities. Was Danny qualified for that? I'm going to go out on a limb and say no. Uh, they all also have to prepare for whatever's going to happen in the wilderness. By mid-March, Jeffrey had stockpiled more than 4,000 rounds of ammunition and had added to his arsenal a 48-pound custom-made 50 caliber rifle that cost $2,700. It makes sense. There's going to be so many demons they're going to have to kill. And I bet some of them are just fucking huge. Like, like as, as big as some of the monsters in the final battle of the Lord of the Rings. He bought that big gun because he wanted the gun capable of shooting down a helicopter because, you know, sometimes... Uh, Demons fly helicopters. You know, demon FBI agents. He also made himself a flag. <laughs> purple with a white star and a red eagle. And why do you make a flag? Ah, so killer Christ knows. He's on Team Zion Redemption. Who the fuck knows? He's quite literally uh, insane. Or quite, you know, possibly literally insane. And then this crazy fucker ups the murder ante. He says that he consulted more scripture and bad news. He now says that he has to kill 10 people. <laughs> Not just the five members of the Avery family. He adds the Patricks, Richard Brandt, and Sharon to the list. On April 4th, Greg and Debbie, I'm sure they're loving this. April 4th, uh, Greg and Debbie are married by Jeffrey. The next day, Richard marries Sharon. Might as well reward some of his faithful with allowing them to get the fuck on before they kick off a big apocalyptic uh, apocalyptic battle where some of them are going to die. On April 10th, 1988, Jeffrey has two followers, Ron Luff and Keith Johnson, that old college friend who had introduced him uh, and Alice, uh, has these guys dig a big pit in a barn. Meanwhile, Jeffrey buys two horses and an all-terrain vehicle, his so-called chariot in the wilderness. Uh, shit just keeps getting weirder and weirder. On Wednesday, April 12th, Jeffrey buys a 44 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. You, know, you can never have enough guns uh, when you have demons to fight and followers to sacrifice. Jeffrey and Alice visit the Averys at night as though uh, making a social call, help them pack up their house because they decide that, or because they thought that they would all be going into the wilderness soon. Uh, Thursday, April 13th, Jeffrey tells officials at Kirtland Elementary School that he's taken Kristen and Caleb out of their classes for a week because the family is going to Disneyland. If only that was true. By Friday, April 14th, all the group members have quit their jobs. Ron and Susie and their two children have moved from the apartment they were living in to the laundry room at the farmhouse. God, this whole family of four in the in the laundry room now. At one point, Cheryl showed up and asked Jeffrey why she and Dennis and their girls hadn't been invited to stay at the farm like the Luffs. Cheryl Avery. Well, Jeffrey said that they didn't have enough room, but uh, gave them some sleeping bags. Now, the next day, Saturday, April 15th, Dennis and Cheryl do come by to help with preparations. Jeffrey has Dennis help with the pit being dug in the barn. 
so fucked up. Has Dennis, uh, well, you'll find out here. Uh, now Jeffrey decides that Tanya and Sharon actually don't need to die. Decoding God's hidden messages is so gosh dang tricky. But the uh, men and the Avery family still do need to die. After Jeffrey finishes up his studies, he picks up Dennis Avery, drives to the Chagrin International Arms Company, where they use Dennis's MasterCard to buy a 30 caliber M1 carbine, another 45 caliber automatic pistol, and a 380 caliber Colt pistol for a total of $1,349. More firepower. Nothing is over. You just don't turn it off. And Tyler, did I say uh, carbine or is it carbine? It's carbine, right? Thanks, Carbine. Okay. That's, I remember I remember. I had a flashback of getting corrected. <laughs> Hoping to avoid that. Uh, on the morning of April 17th, 1989, Jeffrey told Alice that the Patricks and Richard and Sharon had been spared. So now it's just the Averys that need to be sacrificed. Jeffrey did not tell Alice that her poor war-torn butthole had been spared, though. Bummer for her. I picture poor Skidmark always having a bag of ice or a bag of frozen fucking peas or blueberries or something taped to her butt. They then go to the Patrick's apartment and tell Tanya that it's all good. She's not going to be killed that day, along with her husband and daughter. <laughs> and Tanya would have been relieved to hear that information, but she had no idea that was the plan uh, until that moment. Man, if I'm her, I am so nervous that Jeffrey, I mean, God or prophet, you know, whatever is going to change his mind. But I doubt she's being rational. Uh, meanwhile, back at the farm, Greg is making a reservation at the Red Roof Inn in Kirtland for the Averys. If the police ever go looking for them, Jeffrey wants the Averys' last known address to be a motel, not a farmhouse. And Greg, after Greg makes the motel reservation, excuse me, he uh, drives to Cleveland and buys a stun gun now for $59.99. Then around 11.30 a.m., Jeff and Alice pick up the Averys and bring them to the farm for lunch. After lunch, the Averys are dropped off at their motel. Around 6 that evening, Richard would go bring the Averys back to the farm. Before they arrived, Jeffrey loaded one of his 45 caliber pistols with enough bullets for 27 shots. Uh, Dennis, uh, dinner was exactly at 6.30 p.m. Roast beef, mashed potatoes with gravy, corn, salad, and bread. Sounds delicious. Uh, during the meal, Danny, Richard, Sharon, and Greg tried to avoid the Averys. Je uh, Jeffrey, Alice, and their kids, and Ron and Susie Luff and their kids are friendly. Nothing to get awkward about, right? They're not being senselessly murdered. They're being sacrificed to God for the greater good. What an honor. They just get to head to heaven a little earlier than everyone else. No big whoops. After dinner, Jeffrey reminds Cheryl Avery that she was supposed to write a letter to her parents given a fictitious forwarding address for the time period that they would be in the wilderness. Cheryl would write, Dear Mom and Dad, Just a hurried note to let you know that things have happened very fast and Dennis has accepted work in Wyoming and we needed to get there fast. We will let you know address and details when we get settled. Thanks. Love, Cheryl. Then Jeffrey takes all the men except for Dennis Avery, takes Ron Luff, Greg Winship, Richard Brand, Danny Kraft, his oldest son, Damon, upstairs. They all get ready for the human sacrifice. Gotta get their minds right. Maybe watch the little Rambo again. Nothing is over. Alice would now leave with her three youngest children to the Patrick's apartment. Ron then went downstairs, told Dennis that Jeff was in the barn and wanted Dennis to come check something out. It was just before 7.30 p.m. As Dennis walked into the barn, Ron zaps him with a stun gun. Avery screams out in pain. No, no, this isn't necessary. Please, this isn't necessary. God damn it. God damn it. God damn it. A little surprised by the language. One hit from the stun gun and taking the Lord's name in vain, not an issue anymore. Uh, Greg, Richard, Danny, and Damon now knock Dennis to the ground. They quickly tape his hands, feet, and mouth with two-inch wide gray duct tape. They weren't supposed to cover his eyes because Jeffrey, this is so disturbing, wanted Dennis to see him when he executed him. Once Dennis was bound, Richard lifted him by the shoulders. Danny raised his feet. They carried him through the barn into the room uh, at the back of the barn and slid him down into the muddy pit. 
Jeffrey then stood over him with the 45. Greg was supposed to run a chainsaw outside to cover up the sound of the gunshots, but for some reason that wasn't happening and Jeff didn't want to wait. And he fired two shots into his, uh, in, into, um, his body and 48-year-old Dennis was dead. Ron then climbed down into the pit to get the motel key from Dennis, which Jeff wanted in order to make it look like the Averys had left town, but they couldn't find it. Calm and collected like he hadn't just uh, sacrificed a human being, Jeffrey went inside and asked Cheryl for the key and she turned it right over. She has no idea her husband's now dead. Richard, Danny, and Greg now repeat the same process with Cheryl, telling her that there's something in the barn that she needs to see. And when she gets there, they bind her with duct tape. The autopsy will later show that Cheryl was struck twice in the right breast, once in the abdomen when Jeffrey shot her. And after she was shot, Jeff and Ron left the room, went outside into the night air while Cheryl bled out in a dirt pit. The autopsy would later show that despite, despite her wounds, 41-year-old Cheryl had not died instantly. A coroner would estimate she had been alive in the pit for up to five minutes. Now is 15-year-old Trina's turn. By this time, the men told her they were going to play a game and they bound her with duct tape. In the pit, Jeffrey fired two shots into her back, just cold-blooded shit. Next, they kill 13-year-old Becky. After the first shot, she's still breathing, so Jeffrey fires a second shot, just coldly mowing down the entire family. And the last uh, is seven-year-old Karen. Ron lures her into the barn by telling her they're going to see the horses. And he gives her a fucking piggyback ride, right? Does this knowing she's about to be killed. Once again, the men tape her up. When she's then lying in the pit, she has no idea she is next to her family's corpses. And Jeffrey fires two shots into her skull. It's now about 11 p.m. So this went on for a while. Jeffrey now orders Richard and Ron to dump bags of lime on the bodies, figuring it will help speed up decomposition. The Patricks and Johnsons will soon hear about this and freak out. But Alice and Jeffrey simply tell them that they should be glad to have a prophet like Jeffrey in their lives, a strong prophet willing to do anything God asks of him. Now that the sin was gone, Jeffrey said, they could go into the wilderness and meet God, right? Do not weep for it is time to rejoice. At one in the morning, April 18th, Jeffrey finally lets his exhausted followers go to bed. Life will never be the same for any of them. They have collectively crossed the line you cannot uncross. Eight hours later, precisely 9 a.m., April 18th, FBI agent Robert Alvord and Chief Dennis Yarborough begin briefing the 16 special agents and six police officers who are going to quickly descend on Jeffrey and his followers. They came up with a new plan. Even though they couldn't get a warrant, they thought they might make a big show of force and then Jeffrey would agree to have the property searched. By 10 a.m., the unit is ready. Right? These guys have no idea. People have just been murdered on this property. When Albert knocks on the door, Skidmark answers in her bathrobe. Probably hurt to wear clothes at this point. Skidmark, I mean, Alice uh, said that Jeffrey was in the barn and she would get him. She knows exactly what her husband has done, helped him set it all up and doesn't appear rattled in the slightest. Jeffrey, Albert, and Yarbrough come into the house. Richard, Danny, Damon, Dennis, Patrick, and Keith Johnson are headed into the front yard and ordered to sit on the porch. Sharon and Susie are inside. Ron, Debbie, and Greg were out uh, running errands while Kathy Johnson and Tanya Patrick were at the Patrick's apartment. Quick note on Kathy. Kathy is the wife of Keith Johnson, the guy who is Jeffrey's best friend in college. They now have two kids together. The whole family is part of Jeffrey's shit now. Anyway, the FBI starts to ask questions. Jeffrey doesn't seem phased at all. He agrees to show them his gun collection with no pushback. Once the members of the group slowly figure out that the FBI has no idea they had just executed an entire family the night before, right? This was just about the temple takeover. The mood becomes almost lighthearted. They joyfully tell the FBI they have no idea, you know, what they're uh, talking about. Jeffrey is not a prophet. <laughs> Come on. You know, they're not violent. No one's having visions from God. Get out of here. Gosh dang, that's crazy talk. But then Skidmark wanders over to the agents and disrobes. She turns around, bends over, 
and reveals a fully prolapsed rectum. And she shouts, is this not a crime? What should be done to rectify this rectum? How much must one suffer for the righteous yet vengeful God? And then a few other cult members quickly shuffle her away. And just says, sorry about that. She's drunk. Sorry I had to see that. Uh, no, that didn't happen. Anyway, the investigation is stalling. They're finding nothing illegal. FBI officers do find a stun gun, but had no way of knowing it had been used the night before on Dennis Avery. Also find camouflage uniforms and gas masks, but not illegal to simply have those. At 11.51 a.m., agents and police agree it is time to call it quits. The search was a bust, but not a total bust. They did get one very interesting piece of information. All of the suspects had denied that Lundgren was a prophet, except for one. Keith Johnson told them a different story. Keith said that the group was about to go out in the wilderness because God was going to appear to Jeffrey on May 3rd, 1989 and bestow tremendous powers upon him. He said that soon Lundgren would be able to call literal fire down on his enemies, as well as lightning, and be able to cause earthquakes that would shake the earth and destroy most civilizations. Whoa! Prophet Jeffrey is starting to sound like a, like a cooler action figure than Prophet Joseph. Maybe even cooler than Prophet Jesus. I mean, he can throw fire, lightning, and create massive earthquakes. Keith continued talking to investigators. He said that after Prophet Jeffrey burned enemies and shit, there would be quite the plot twist. The Russians were now going to take over the world. Uh-huh. And then on May 4th, 1990, Lundgren would lead an armed assault on the RLDS church in Kirtland, and he would rescue the temple from the Russians. Uh, apparently, Jeffrey was watching Red Dawn a lot, in addition to Rambo First Blood, right? Just uh, full uh, Wolverines! He told the officers that he believed Lundgren could do these things 100%, but if God did not appear to Jeffrey on May 3rd, 1989, he was out. How fucking crazy do you think Keith's eyes were when he's saying all this shit? They're very wide, I'm guessing. As weird as the story was, there was nothing they could do with it from a legal standpoint. Not illegal to be a complete maniac. Meanwhile, after the officers left, Jeffrey told his followers that the agents not finding the bodies of the Averys, even though they literally walked over their fresh graves, was a clear indication that he could do anything he wanted. God was protecting him. And now it was time to go out into the wilderness. Colt, Colt, Colt. Everyone packs up their trucks uh, with survival, survival gear now, starts driving out, out, uh, out of town with Jeffrey leading the caravan. And Jeffrey, uh, he has no fucking idea where he's going, right? He'll just know when he sees it, God will guide him. After two days of traveling Southeast on various state highways, they arrive in the Canaan Valley of West Virginia. Jeffrey let them know that this was the place. This is where they would meet God after some trials and tribulations. By April 23rd, Jeffrey has moved the group to a campsite, but after some fishermen wander by, he decides, nah, they got to go deeper into the forest. And so they do set up a new campsite. A kerosene powered generator supplied sufficient electricity to operate a deep freeze, a microwave oven taken from the Avery household, an electric fence would be used to pen the two horses. And they even had pair, uh, a pair of televisions and videotape players one of which was Jeffrey's and Jeffrey's tent for his personal viewing. Uh, each family had their own tent. Debbie made the meals. Kathy tended the horses. Others cooked, cleaned, did laundry, cared for the children, collected firewood, and hunted game. They did this all on, uh, you know, just out there on government land, just hanging out in a remote portion of the U.S. wilderness area in West Virginia. On May 3rd, Jeffrey arose early, announced that he was going to the top of a nearby mountain to meet God on his birthday, as one does when they are an important prophet. And then when he returns, he says that Jesus Christ did appear directly to him and said two things. First off, Jesus said, ease up on Skidmark. God didn't want him shitting on her tits, a raw dog in her butthole, you know, with no loop. That was a devil pushed him towards all that. 
Whoopsie-daisy. No, first off, and this is so fucking cool, Jeffrey had given, uh, excuse me, Jesus had given Jeffrey the title of God of the whole earth. <laughs> Whoa, pop open the champagne and let's celebrate. Jeffrey was divine. It's official now. And then two, just as magnificent, Jeffrey was now immortal. Couldn't be touched by bullets, knives, or any other weapons. Sweet. Man, if only he'd put on a demonstration of this and had someone kill him. Oh, well, you know, maybe just had one of his followers be like, oh, awesome. And then just, you know, just for funsies, fire a gun at him. Uh, Also, and this is so important because he was divine, anything less than total obedience to Jeffrey's will was now a sin. Even being depressed, like Dennis Patrick was over the silly murders, that was now a sin. Stop being a little whiny bitch, baby, Dennis. Yeah, I shot a family to death. Get over it. It's in the past now. Spilt milk and whatnot. Jeffrey, immortal, divine, scat play lover Jeffrey, threatened to tie Dennis to a tree and literally shoot him in the balls if he couldn't get his act together, even pulling out a pistol in front of the other members. And Dennis begged him for another chance. Man, Jeffrey just reminds me so much of Jesus. Do you remember the time that Jesus threatened to tie one of his apostles to a tree and cut his dick off with a sword? Uh, when the guy, uh, was it Paul? Uh, Peter, maybe? Uh, wouldn't stop crying about the family that Jesus executed? Bow down to the good God, Jeffrey, king shit, maker of, well, not a lot, actually. Uh, Jeffrey did not kill Dennis, but he did tell everyone to stop speaking to Dennis for a while. Going forward, night after night, Dennis would lay awake in his tent, afraid that someone was coming to murder him in any second. It sounds like a lot of fun for these guys. Uh, Meanwhile, Jeffrey Start is a newly immortal deity does, putting the moves on follower Tanya Patrick. Jeffrey told Tanya that he'd always felt a special tenderness towards her, even during their college days before she had married Dennis, when all of them used to hang out at the RLDS Student Center in Warrensburg. Now he tells her that her true purpose is to be his second wife. Finally, cult, cult, cult. Uh, Within a week, the two of them are having sex on the sly. When Alice finds out and confronts him, Jeffrey denies everything. Also, uh, how dare Skidmark confront Jeff God about anything? Truly surprised he didn't just smite her. Right then and there, just fucking burn her alive or something. She's lucky he doesn't have his earthquake powers yet. A little while later, Jeff God said that God God was tired of Alice's nagging and basically it wasn't easy to be God of the whole earth. So fucking cut me some slack. And then he told her that the only reason he was having sex with Tanya was to save her life. Not kidding. He said that God had ordered him to, to quote, pierce Tanya. And he could either pierce her with a bullet or his penis. That was... (laughs) These are God's words. <laughs> and now the choice was Alice's. Make your move, Skidmark. Does Tanya live or die? Alice relents and says, okay, you can, <laughs> you can have another wife. And now just like last week, I hope you're not eating something while listening to this, especially not something soft and brown. When I first read this next section on a plane to Detroit, headed to my uh, stand-up show in Pontiac, Michigan, I started laughing so hard, like too much. Maybe drew a couple uncomfortable stares. It is so absurd. There are so many, holy shit, did not see that coming moments uh, coming up in this absurd story. This is one of them. The day after Jeffrey tells Alice he has to sleep with Tanya or kill her, he takes Alice into the woods and she watches him take a dump on the ground. Then he instructs Alice to cover him completely with his own shit. And favorite part tells him uh, uh, that she needs to, (laughs) or she, yeah, he tells her that she needs to tell him how beautiful he is as he masturbates. Right, he's just full fucking Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs now. It rubs the shit on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. I'd fuck me hard. I'd fuck me so hard. Uh, But then poop-covered Jeffrey can't come. 
<laughs> so now he puts some feces in his mouth and he makes Alice kiss him. What is happening? Then, still not done. Then he makes her blow him with his dick covered in his own shit. And she starts to gag. Of course she does. But he forces himself inside her mouth anyway. And after he finishes, uh, he makes her bathe him and then tells her, hey, your sin's forgiven now. Glory be to God. <laughs> Glory be to earth poop God. And then abruptly, Jeffrey decides he doesn't want to sleep with Tanya, Tanya anymore. And Jeffrey's a lot of things, but predictable is not one of them. Uh, a couple months later, late July of 1989, after these weirdos have been out in the woods all summer, Jeffrey Shitlord tells Alice that God has shown him a magical vagina in a dream now. And God <laughs> and God has ordered him to seek out and find said sorcery puss. I truly love how weird the story is. Hail Nimrod. Uh, meanwhile, the investigators in Kirtland are stunned by Jeffrey's sudden disappearance over the summer. They try and track him down, but none of his contacts, like his bank or his old friends, know where he is. All they have to go on are a few charges on Greg Winship's credit card. But then midsummer, a park ranger notifies Kirtland police that they have seen Jeffrey and his followers camped out in West Virginia. Uh, Yarborough tells West Virginia Sheriff Hank Thompson just to keep an eye on him. Early August, Thompson decides to visit the Lundgren camp on the pretense that school would be starting soon and West Virginia requires all children to be enrolled. By this time, the group had been in the wilderness for nearly four months and they're starting to get depressed. When were they going to see God? They were supposed to see him back in May. Come on! Jeffrey said that killing the Averys would lead them to a journey into the wilderness and then God would reveal himself, but they've been in the wilderness for months. You know, nothing's happening. Jeff God insists that his followers were still too full of sin to meet God God. And now to strip the women of their sinful pride that is keeping God from visiting, Jeffrey now requires Kathy Johnson, Debbie Olivares, Sharon Blunchley, and Susie Luff to perform a strip tease for him, of course. Debbie is his cousin, in case anyone forgot. Susie was immediately upset. She told Ron, even though Jeff God had told the women, uh, you know, this all this in private, about the strip tease, that it was, it was supposed to be in secret. Now Ron confronts Jeffrey, oh, ballsy, and Jeffrey says that he's all worked up for nothing. It's a big misunderstanding, right? Ron will later convey Jeffrey's uh, explanation to investigators. <laughs> said when the group got together later that evening, Jeffrey said God was disappointed with the group, so much so that he had even considered destroying everyone except for Jeffrey and starting over. But Jeffrey had come up with a way to appease God. Wow, what a nice guy. The women in the group would intercede on their husband's behalf with God's representative on earth, aka Jeffrey. They would need to do... <laughs> They would need to do a striptease in front of Jeffrey because of a verse in Isaiah. Tremble, ye women that are at ease. Be troubled, ye careless ones. Strip make you bare and gird sackcloth upon your loins. Clearly that's telling you, if you're fucking reading it right, to have your women friends strip in front of you. Spilling semen and spilling blood were the same thing, Jeffrey argued. So while each woman was dancing naked in front of him, Jeffrey would, in order to save everyone, naturally have to masturbate and ejaculate his semen into each of the women's panties, right? As God intended men to do when he shared his wisdom with the prophet Isaiah. I'm sure Isaiah was coming all over women's panties back in the 8th century BCE. This Jeffrey explained would essentially be the same thing as Jesus shedding blood for mankind, right? Samesies. Also, as directed by obvious biblical interpretation, after he came on their panties, Jeffrey would give the panties back to the women and they would wear their soiled underwear for one full day. So saith God. Then, still not done. <laughs> Jeffrey would ride the ATV they had up to the mountaintop where he would now meet God and be purified by his presence. And then, a la peanut butter sandwiches, presto changeo, the group's sin will be wiped clean and, you know, any day they can meet God. 
right? Just fucking lickety split. Oh my God. Jeffrey talked to Ron about all this for nearly two hours. And he said, if he, <laughs> I forgot, there's still more to this. And he said, if they, if, if he didn't come for any of the dancing women, well, that woman and her family would have to be, you know, executed. They'd have to be killed and dumped into a new, new uh, murder pit. More blood sacrifices. No pressure. To make the men more comfortable with his arrangement, Jeffrey announced a skid mark <laughs> would be beside him during the entire ritual and uh, would hold a sheet in front of him so that the women would not see his penis while he masturbated. You know, you got to keep it wholesome. Alice will later say she suspected that he was doing all this so he could find uh, out which woman had the magic vagina he had seen in his dream. And Alice will now help uh, set up this super fucked up talent show. She tells the women that they were all created. <laughs> oh my God. She tells the women that they were all created. This is a quote. They were all created with three holes in which they could be pierced by men. Orally, vaginally, and anally. Therefore, naturally, the women would have to show Jeffrey each of their holes during the dance. Let Earth God stare into their stink eye, right? Also, <laughs> Alice suggested songs that were Jeffrey's favorites for the women to play while dancing. I wonder if she recommended a Tina Turner like last week. On August 14th, Tanya, Jeffrey's done fucking her and knows her vagina is not magical, takes all the kids out of camp so they wouldn't know what was going on. Susie now reports to Jeffrey's tent at 9 a.m. As instructed, uh, <laughs> Ron stays in his tent reading scriptures and praying. While his wife strips for a fucking maniac. After Susie had removed her clothing, she hands Jeffrey her panties. He quickly wraps them around his penis, begins to masturbate with them, while Susie goes through various moves that Jeffrey's wife, Alice, had told her were required. Ah, most of today's episode feels like someone's fever dream, more than a real story. And then mid-song, Jeff God and Alice, well, they spring a new requirement on Susie. She also now has to masturbate during the dance. Alice will say that they had to, quote, come unto the Lord literally. Well, Jeffrey uh, ejaculates about 45 minutes later and Susie falls to the 10th floor at Jeffrey's feet as he declares that he has sanctified her. Oh, wow. Susie then goes to uh, Ron's tent to, to tell him the good news. She's been sanctified. She made, she made the prophet come. Oh, everything's cool. No one has to die. Ron was then to come to the Lundgren tent dressed in full military gear to swear his allegiance to Jeffrey, which he fucking does. They are all insane at this point. And now it's time for lunch. Yeah, why not? Uh, just grab some Sammies and some soda. Maybe get some chips after all this craziness. Then after lunch, after some Mountain Dew and bologna and cheese and fucking Funyuns, now it's Sharon's turn. Uh, Jeffrey doesn't find himself attracted to her, so Alice slips under the sheet and blows him while Sharon masturbates and dances. Ah, good job, Alice. You really, you really saved a family from being sacrificed there. Richard then appears in full military gear and swears gear and swears his allegiance to King Jeffrey. Uh, Kathy dances. <laughs> Kathy, Kathy dances the next morning at ten o'clock. Right on August fifteenth, Je Jeff God needs time to recharge. Even an immortal Earth God needs time to recharge his God balls. As she masturbates, Jeffrey whispers to Kathy, "There it is," apparently referencing the magical dream vagina. Excuse me. Jeffrey ejaculates that afternoon. It is Debbie's turn to dance. Right, even though, again, she's Jeffrey's cousin. Uh, once again, he comes. Jeffrey now stays in his tent for two days after the dances. You know, just uh, thinking about it all, letting it marinate. Alice tells everyone that he's physically ill because of the sins that he's taken on from the group due to all this. Poor Jeffrey. Uh, on the third day, he is strong enough to come out of his tent and ride his ATV. <laughs> I love for some reason that he rides his ATV to the mountain instead of walks, uh, where he goes to meet God. When he returns, he says that everything's fine now. God had cleansed all of their sins. The dances were 
Uh, tip top. Good job. Good job, everybody. Uh, but then he approaches Keith Johnson in private with a new message. Bad news. Everything is actually not fine. Dennis Patrick has to die. And no one can intercede for him because Tanya is now Jeffrey's wife. Well, Keith tells Kathy. Kathy immediately volunteers to strip tease again if that will save Dennis. But Jeffrey gets angry about this, saying they cannot manipulate God. And now he says, well, now Keith has to fucking die too. God damn it, Kathy. You can't fix everything with your magic pussy. Jeffrey does let Kathy know that there was a different way she could intercede on Keith's behalf, though. Jeff God would spare Keith's life if Kathy let Jeffrey fuck her. Mm -hmm. I guess you can fix everything with your magic puss. Uh, On August 25th, Keith tells Jeffrey that Kathy has agreed to have sexual intercourse with him in order to save both he, his, excuse me, and Dennis's life. Uh, They're still going along with all this, still fueling this complete losers, insane delusions. It's incredible, right? That old sunk cost fallacy can just get some of us meat sacks to go along with the craziest of crazy shit. Also, Keith is Jeffrey's old college buddy, uh, was his best friend. And now that guy's about to fuck his wife and mother of two kids. Uh, During intercourse, Jeffrey tells Kathy he loves her. Kathy has no idea Jeffrey had recently said the same shit to Tanya. He would quickly announce that Tanya was actually supposed to be Dennis's wife, not his. He said he'd made her his captive wife, quote unquote, because Dennis was sinful. (laughs) Yeah, just trying to help out. Uh, But now she can go back to him because he was reformed. Yeah, yeah, all makes sense. All tracks. Tanya's sudden return worries the other men. Most realize that Jeffrey could do the same thing to them that he had done to Dennis, simply accuse them of being sinful and claim their spouse as his new captive wife. Who will Jeff God pierce next? Who will he want to watch him? cover himself in shit and jerk off while telling him he's such a beautiful boy. Actually, he seems to reserve the real freaky shit only for Skidmark. Uh, The rest of his flock, not quite ready to have their faith be tested to quite that degree by Jeff God. Uh, Around this time, there was also, wouldn't you know it, more weird sex stuff. Jeffrey soon uh, soon tells Greg that Greg is destined to become Jeffrey's homosexual lover. Uh, I'm sure that was confusing and terrifying (laughs) for Greg because he's he's not homosexual. Uh, Hey, bud. Uh, studying the pattern again and I came across some really interesting stuff in the book of Elijah not today not tomorrow but soon you're gonna have to suck some shit off God's dick my dick to be clear also soon Greg Jeff God is gonna have to fuck your butt anyway today I need you to run into town and get some more kerosene for the generator thanks buddy nothing is over you just don't turn it off After the intercession, masturbation, magic vagina dances, Jeffrey also began talking about sex more openly in his scriptural classes at night. During one such session, Jeffrey announces that the Old Testament prophet Isaiah was a, quote, cross-dresser who frequently wore women's clothing. Another night, Jeffrey claimed that the pattern revealed to him that Jesus engaged in sex with various women and masturbated a bunch as a kid. (laughs) And about 10 days after Jeff and Kathy have sex for the first time, Jeffrey announced that the two of them need to go on a little short trip together. It's time for a honeymoon. Uh, They began their trek to the mountains on September 5th, uh, still 1989. Both later claimed that they got lost, had no choice but to spend the night together away from the rest of camp. Around this time, Kathy tells Jeff God that she's willing to leave her husband to become his primary wife. Of course, why wouldn't she? He is a catch. By the way, this dude is not physically attractive, just to make this all more absurd. I do feel like that detail matters. Like David Koresh, you know, he was a looker. Handsome dude. Even Jim Jones. Young Jim Jones Handsome compared to this guy. Hell, Charles fucking Manson was handsome compared to this guy. 
At this point in his life, Jeffrey is easily 50 plus pounds overweight. He's, he's balding. He's got a real weak chin, really bad skin, long, but not cool hair. He looks like a guy who still lives at home with mom, but also rides a Harley to prove that he's a bad boy. Uh, this is not some Ben Affleck or Ryan Reynolds looking cult leader pulling off this weird sex shit. Uh, now that Kathy is in, Jeffrey had to figure out how to get rid of Alice. September 15th, local sheriff Hank Thompson swoops over the camp in a helicopter. Everyone ducks for cover, but Thompson doesn't land. Just letting him know, right, that uh, he knows they're there. Jeffrey now announces that it's getting too dangerous for Alice and the children to stay in camp. He tells Alice that he wants her to leave that very day for her mom's house in Max Creek, Missouri. He'll join her later, right? They'll have to uh, find somewhere uh, new for the group to live. God, God is just testing them. No need to be alarmed. All going according to uh, uh, God, God's plan. Jeffrey told her to take Jason, Kristen, and Caleb with her. Jeffrey also wanted Susie Luff and her two children to go. Alice agreed, but decided to take a nap first. And when she wakes up, right, it's a couple hours later, her husband's nowhere to be found. And then a few minutes later, <laughs> Jeff and Kathy come uh, cruising down on the ATV from wherever they had just obviously fucked. And Alice loses her shit. Well, not, not her literal shit. Uh, she starts hitting Jeff God, though, and kicking him. Then she curses him out, herds her kids and Susie into the truck. Whew. She'd make it to her mom's house that night and immediately began some heavy drinking. Man, her parents, what are they thinking of all this insane shit? Did she tell them that they've been living in the woods waiting, you know, for the redemption of Zion with uh, two-bit hustler Jeffrey who had mooched off of them for years who now thinks he's God of the earth? If so, sources do not reveal this. Meanwhile, Jeffrey officially proclaims Kathy to be his second wife now and also has a new plan to split up the group. He, Kathy, Ron, Damon, Greg, and Debbie will go deeper into the woods. Dennis, Tanya, Keith, Richard, and Sharon will stay behind. Why? Mysterious ways. Don't question it! After Sharon's vision for what must be done now, everyone begins moving tents. By midnight, the move is complete, and Jeffrey and Kathy have the large Lundgren tent all to themselves for the little fuck shack. And they spend the next three days on a more of a proper honeymoon. God knows what they got up to in that dirty tent. I'm guessing quite a bit of butt stuff. And now Keith Johnson is mad. Yeah, of course he is! This guy fucking took his wife and he decides he's going to flip the script. Looking at his own scripture, he realized that Jeffrey is equating Kathy to the biblical Bathsheba with Jeffrey in the role of David. He then goes through some more lines, you know, using the pattern and sees that two of David's sons had died. And that meant to him, Keith told Dennis Patrick, that two of Jeffrey's sons now have to die. Dennis immediately races over to Jeffrey, tells him what Keith is preaching. Jeffrey calls all the men together now, has them bring Keith out into the woods. They form a circle around him. Keith is unarmed. Jeffrey has taken away his guns, but Jeffrey has his 45 automatic. Keith immediately apologizes, begs for his life. Jeffrey doesn't kill him, but does have him move his tent to the other camp. And Ron will move in with Keith to supervise him. Jeffrey now also decides time for him to move on. His new plan is to get back to Missouri, where Kathy will invite some RLDS fundamentalists to hear a special class on the pattern. Then Jeffrey will solicit so much money, plenty of money to get the rest of the group back to Missouri where Alice is. Jeffrey soon leaves from Missouri, leaving Ron in charge of camp. He telephones Alice, you know, tells her that he's on his way back to her, saying the affair with Kathy was a delusion. Uh, huh. Uh, Earth God really doesn't seem to have his shit together. But once he actually made it to Alice's mother's house, he tells Alice that he had gone up to the top of the mountain in West Virginia and God had told him that he did want Jeffrey to take a second wife. Alice is furious and loses it again. She threatens to tell the police now about the Averys. Jeffrey stays in Max Creek for two days, calming Alice down. Then he tells her that he has to hurry back to West Virginia. And like a good dad, he leaves his son Damon behind with orders to watch his mom, make sure she doesn't tip off the police. About five innocent people he has executed. 
Then Jeffrey meets Kathy. Oh, they're not done at all. Of course not. And they go to Kingsville, a nearby town where Jeffrey will teach his chiasmus class. Instead of the hundreds and hundreds of grateful people they anticipated coming, uh, about 12 people show up. And these 12 people, not impressed. Old King shit is looking uh, rough these days, to put it mildly. He's badly sunburned. He is filthy. He has dirty, matted hair. He stinks, (laughs) like literally stinks. Rambles about the pattern to a group of people who look like they all regretted coming. And not one person gives him a dollar. It was worst case scenario. So it's back to West Virginia for Jeff and Kathy uh, with Jeffrey, I'm sure, going on and on about great trials and tribulations and being tested and whatnot. Uh, by October, life in the West Virginia woods, miserable for the, for the cult. The air became bitterly cold. Jeffrey and Kathy had a portable heater in their tent, but the others go without. There's no more money for food. Some days, Debbie will serve rice and cream gravy three times a day for the rest of them. Practically everybody's having marital problems, of course. In order to raise cash, Jeffrey orders his followers to begin selling everything they don't need and to get jobs in nearby towns. And then, as soon as he takes their money, he takes Kathy out to nice dinners. Right? Cheddar, biscuits, and shrimp for Jeff Godden's second wife. More rice and cream gravy for the sinners. Then Jeffrey announces that he was heading back to Missouri with Ron, random, and he is leaving Kathy in charge. Once again, Jeffrey spends a few days at Max Creek with his in-laws. He and Alice get into a blowout fight, smacking each other over and over. Jeffrey hits Alice so hard, uh, she rup- he ruptures her eardrum. My God. Why the fuck do her parents never intervene in this madness? Jeff will leave for West Virginia again the following morning, but not before Alice threatens him. She makes it clear. If he doesn't move to Max Creek immediately, she is turning him in. Next morning, October 12th, 1989, Jeff drives to a pawn shop in Elkins and sells both his 45 caliber pistols, including the one he'd used on the Averys. He tried to switch out uh, the barrel of one with the barrel of the other, making him harder to trace, but the two barrels, not interchangeable. He then returns to Max Creek once more with the Patricks, leaving Kathy behind with Debbie, Greg, Richard, Sharon, Danny, and Keith. All of them completely broke, morale very low. Kathy finally rides the ATV into town and gets someone to agree to pick the camp up and bring them all to her mother's house. Things are falling apart. On October 15th, the rest of the group arrives at Kathy's mother's house. Everyone wants to know what's happening next. When will they all live together again? Jeffrey tells Kathy that he and his kids will continue living with Alice at the Keelers until the group can find a new place to stay. Uh, Ron, Susie, Dennis, Tanya, and their children are sleeping in tents pitched in the Keelers' backyard. What? A shit show. What a nightmare, especially for the poor kids along for this terrible ride. Well, Kathy's irritated now. She had left her family to be with Jeffrey, but he is not showing nearly the same kind of commitment in return. Plus, Kathy is now pregnant, you know, thought to be pregnant with Jeff God's child. Perfect. She tells him she needs him to deal with Alice. He said he will once they find a permanent place to live. Does Skidmark have a target on her back now? Has she been marked for death by Jeff God? Days later, Jeff God does find them a new compound, an abandoned barn. Oh, man. Cushy livings uh, near uh, Chilhowee, a rural community in Missouri, south of Warrensburg. The group moves there October 21st, most of the group. Now Jeffrey promises them that he will soon find a permanent home for all of them like they'd had in Kirtland. And once there, they'll go back to working while he studies the scriptures to figure out exactly when God will reveal himself to them all. For the time being, Jeffrey decides to take Kathy back to Max Creek to live with him and Alice at her fucking parents' house. One big thruple. Holy shit. You know what? Fuck Alice's parents. What a couple of weak losers. You do not deserve to have kids if you will not stand up for them in this kind of situation. This is absurd. When they get to Max Creek, Alice sees Kathy and Jeff as a couple and starts to sob. 
Jeffrey gets angry with her over this. Then that night, he'll accuse her of being disobedient and forces her to have some unlubed anal sex. Next day, the tensions in this unhappy thruple rise even higher, leading to Alice starting a physical fight with Kathy at the fucking grocery store. Jeffrey tears them apart, but then that night, he has sex with Kathy. (laughs) Forgot about this again. He has sex with Kathy, and then after having sex with Kathy at at Alice's parents' house, he goes and wakes up Alice to ask her if she will make both of them post-coital hamburgers. This is so absurd. I laughed so fucking hard when I first read this. This guy is so sadistic, just delusional, narcissistic, the nervous motherfucker. Just after fucking the, the mistress at his wife's parents' house, just going up uh, into the room where his wife is sleeping and just like, hey, baby, baby, hey, a- Alice, Alice, sorry to wake you. I am so hungry. I'm just craving one of those burgers that only you can make, babe. And can you make one for Kathy too? Oh, she is starving. We must have just burned like 10,000 calories fucking these other's brains out. Why are you so mad? Uh, Jeff got clearly enjoying having Kathy and Alice fight over him. Next several days will continue to be super tense. One night it escalates to a fight when Alice pulls the sheets off Jeffrey and Kathy as they're having sex again in her parents' house. A physical altercation ensues. By the end of it, Jeff God bleeding has chunks of his hair ripped out. And Alice then downs 50 aspirin in an attempted suicide, but Jeff forces her to throw up. So sloppy is all of this. The next day, he says he intends to move with Kathy and the kids to the fucking abandoned dairy barn with the rest of the cult. And Alice can't come. She's too sinful. Obviously, too much pride and whatnot. Alice begs him to forgive her. So he takes her to the bathroom and no one is probably going to be really shocked by this at this point. He literally shits on her face. Showbies. Finally found a fellow who enjoys popping hot peanut butter butters much as myself. Hot diggity dog. Bad cats and bimbos. Maybe Jeff is not Earth God. Maybe he's Albert Fish reincarnated. After Jeff literally shits on his wife's face, (laughs) he rubs it all over her before they have anal sex. At the end of all this, he then gives her a bath because deep down he's a gentleman and says that he's purified her. And now she can come with the rest of them to the dairy barn. That's all it took. Hey, babe. God, I just had to shit on your face and fuck your butt and, you know, smear some poo on you and then give you a bath. And then then you get to come to the barn. It's awesome. Uh, she went with him to the dairy barn, but then more theatrics with Kathy drive her back to Max Creek with her folks. <sighs> this time she returns home alone. Her kids and Jeffrey stay at the barn. On October 29th, Greg Winship's father drives out to the dairy barn in Chilhowie, asks his son to leave with him. Enough is enough. But Greg refuses. But not for the reason you might think. Greg has secretly been planning to leave for weeks, but he thinks he has a better chance of hiding if he leaves on his own instead of with his dad. Next day, Greg and Richard decide they will escape on Halloween night. So Halloween night, Greg and Richard get back from their minimum wage jobs at a nearby mail order Christmas supply shop. Uh, Everything is uh, set to go uh, for them to go. But Debbie catches them loading up their suitcases and starts screaming. Jeffrey rushes over and threatens them. But then decides, you know what? Fuck it. Go. Be gone, Judases. As soon as Richard climbs inside Greg's car, Greg hits the gas pedal. They peel out, speed away from the barn. They're free from this madness. Now Debbie decides she wants to see her children from her previous marriage. Closest payphone is four miles away. She waits for her chance to walk there undetected. She wants out to. By mid-November, Debbie is feeling ready. As soon as she uh, hears Jeffrey leave the barn that morning, she gets up. When the others uh, got up at 6.30, Debbie is uh, already long gone. So the the group is unraveling. Also in mid-November, November 15th, Sheriff Hank Thompson, Telephone's Chief Yarborough, reports that Jeffrey and his followers have left West Virginia. This group has left behind one tent, a sewing machine, and a Bible that has Keith Johnson's name on it. Thompson's also found several garbage bags hidden near the camp. 
They're filled with animal bones. He figures the men have been poaching deer. In the seven months since Jeffrey had left Kirtland, the FBI had actually closed their investigation on him. But Yarborough still curious about Jeffrey. So he decides to make some phone calls. And within a few days, he discovers that Alice is living in Max Creek while Jeffrey and the others are camping in a dairy barn around Chilhowee. Yarborough calls former member Kevin Curie's mom in Buffalo, asks her to have Kevin call him. When Kevin does, Yarborough tells him that the group is back in Missouri. Kevin asks which members went into the wilderness. The chief begins reciting names. But when he says Dennis and Cheryl Avery, Kevin stops him and asks him, are you sure about that? Yarborough said he was. Kevin said he highly doubted that because Jeffrey never liked the Averys. In fact, he said Jeffrey was convinced the Averys were vile people. After that conversation, Yarborough looks over his notes and he now realizes that no one has interviewed the Avery, or the, excuse me, no one had interviewed the Averys on April 18th, right? The day local authorities and the FBI searched the Lundgren farm just uh, hours after, unbeknownst to Yarborough, the Averys had been executed. Soon Yarborough realizes that no one has seen the family since mid-April. Meanwhile, Lundgren's now smaller group moves again to a farm outside of Warrensburg, back where Jeff and Alice once were college lovers. Not the, not the farm, but you know, Warrensburg. Uh, the farm was owned by Ron Luff's brother. After settling in, there is more tension in the group. The remaining followers can't help but notice that the Lundgren children, they're wearing new clothes. They seem pretty well fed while the rest struggle and suffer and wear rags. Well, Jeff God has secretly been uh, making sure what little money the group has goes to him, his kids, and his lover. The followers also figure out that Jeff and Kathy watch a lot of hardcore porn in their trailer. Not exactly godly behavior, as if any of this is godly behavior. Uh, Jeffrey quiets now what he feels like is an impending rebellion by reminding the small group that they will not be able to make it without him. They need him. They don't, but you know he convinces them they do. Secretly around the same time, he tells Alice that he's planning on abandoning his followers and moving with her and the kids to California. Around Thanksgiving. Um, yeah, sorry. Around Thanksgiving, Ron's brother discovers that Jeffrey is practicing polygamy and kicks him the fuck off the property. Jeffrey leaves without putting up much of a fight. Immortal, bulletproof, earth god Jeffrey looking pretty fucking weak these days. Jeffrey now tells his followers that they should all try to find somewhere to live during the winter. Oh, and uh, one more thing. Uh, you know, be sure and, uh, you know, keep sending money. Like He'll contact them. He'll tell them where to send their money. Love that. You're on your own, children. Trials and tribulations. Best of luck. But do not forget, while you are scrambling for food and shelter, you still got to send me some money. Remember, prophet gods cannot work for mere mortals. We're almost there, team. Just about to redeem Zion any day now. Then he gets into his car and drives off back to Max Creek. His followers are fucking stunned. Within a day, they'll all move off the property. Uh, by December 6th, a Wednesday, Kathy and Danny Kraft are the only two group members still loyal to Jeffrey. Uh, everyone else, well, outside of Alice, everyone else, uh, Dennis and his son, Damon, but outside of his family. Everyone else, Dennis and Tanya, Sharon, Ron and Susie Luff, w, uh, Debbie and Keith, they're all finally out. The sad little cult has uh, just hit a new low. That night, Keith calls Jeffrey, threatens to turn him into the police for murdering the Averys unless he ends his relationship with Kathy by nine o'clock the next morning. Also says he's given a letter to his attorney in a sealed envelope and instructed him to open it if anything should happen to him. Your fucking move, poop god. Instead of giving in to Keith's demands, Jeffrey rounds up Kathy and Danny and takes them to Max Creek. Then he packs up Alice and the kids. The plan is now for all of them to go to California. Nothing is over. You just don't turn it off. On Saturday, December 9th, Jeffrey moves everyone to a motel in Springfield. The next day, he will set up Kathy in a motel in Kansas City, promising to contact her when he could. When he returns to Springfield that night, he has Alice shave all the hair off his body except for his head, put his hair in curlers, and apply makeup on him. Okay? Then dressed in women's clothing, Jeffrey walks around a grocery store while Alice waits in his truck in the parking lot. 
Then he heads out to the truck, hikes up his skirt, and Alice gives him a blowjob. I mean, why not? Life has fallen apart, and he might have just been implicated in the murder of five people. But none of that is a reason not to indulge in a quick, elaborate sexual fantasy. Carpe diem. Meanwhile, all of the uh, former followers were meeting in the apartment where Debbie and Sharon were staying. The point was to figure out how culpable they were in the murder of the Averys. They felt certain that all of them, even the men who had participated, would be considered as having been pressured into it all. It seemed fair, given that Jeffrey probably would have killed them had they refused. But when Keith suggests they go to the police, everyone falls silent. They remember how they lied to authorities on April 18th. Then Debbie makes a plea. She says she'll tell authorities what happened, she'll turn herself in, but only after she has a couple more months to spend with her kids. They'll agree to take a few months to get their story straight, consult with attorneys, make sure their version is ironclad and implicated, uh, and they're not implicated as far as any criminal culpability. Five days later, Jeffrey, Alice, Danny, and and the Lundgren kids arrive in San Diego now, December 14th. They registered for a room at the Traveler Motel Suites. And the next day, Alice will apply for welfare using Jeffrey's real name. She'll start, you know, signing up uh, or applying for jobs. Alice collects some $300 in food stamps. That day, another $938 through a program designed to help homeless families find housing to rent. Jeffrey, he is not going to be bothered with doing anything to help his family. Now, he's more of a, he's more of a self-care kind of guy. He understands that he can't really be available to help take care of anyone else if he's not taking care of himself first, right? Love thyself then you can love others. So he gets a gym membership and starts spending a lot of time working out while Alice watches TV in the motel and Damon looks after the rest of the kids. And they all, of course, keep studying God's word. Always time for that. At night, Jeffrey teaches his oldest son, Damon, and uh, Danny, or, you know, uh, the I'm sorry, oldest son, Damon, and the Danny, his follower, and Alice, various new scriptural interpretations. At one point, Jeffrey talks about recruiting motorcycle gang members to be followers. Why? Well, because they'll be tough enough to perform all the killing that God is about to order. And then Jeffrey tells Alice that, you know, motorcycle gang members, they tend to hang out in strip clubs in San Diego. So naturally, God wants him to start visiting all of the fully nude strip clubs in the area to search for new disciples. For work, Alice, for work. He has to spend as much time as possible in titty bars for the Lord's work. Is he going to get a bunch of lap dances? Of course he is. He needs to blend in. Make sure the motorcycle club guys think he's one of them. He'll hate it, of course. He'll hate being surrounded by so much young, naked flesh and sin. But no one said being God God's chosen earth God was going to be easy. They would live that way for a couple of weeks. Alice at home, Danny watching the kids, Jeff doing God knows what strip clubs. How is all of this insanity the real lives of some people? Then on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1989, Chief Yarborough is getting ready to host a New Year's party when the phone rings. An agent for the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms is on the line calling from Kansas City. Agent Richard Van Helst, another dick, noted, had just spent more than two hours interviewing a man who claimed that five murder victims were buried in a barn outside Kirtland. His source is is Keith Johnson. And the people buried in the barn, Keith had said, were the Avery family. Finally, Keith is rightfully fucking furious with his old friend, right? An old friend I'm sure he wishes he had never met. Keith told Van Helst that one of the main reasons why he had now come forward was because he wanted the BATF to track down his wife and to arrest Jeffrey. Yarborough hoped it was all just a bunch of nonsense coming from a jilted husband, but also had a bad feeling about this in his gut. He did think Jeffrey was capable of murder. The very next morning, Yarborough discovers that none of the Avery's relatives have heard from them at all since April. By the time all the paperwork was signed to investigate the barn, it was 10.30 p.m. They would not wait until the next morning. They began their investigation that night. 
The next day, January 2nd, Dennis Patrick walks into Yarborough's office, tells the chief that neither he nor his wife nor Debbie Olivares are in the group anymore. He also says that he wanted to go to the barn to get some of his things. Ah, Dennis, you're just a few days too late to clean up your tracks. Yarborough suggests he come back that next afternoon. Yarborough can't believe his luck. Dennis has no fucking idea that Keith Johnson has confessed. Meanwhile, the BATF sends the Kirtland Police Department a diagram of the barn with the possible location of the bodies based on Keith's confession. Yarbrough remembers that the inside of the barn had been suspiciously full of trash when he had previously searched it, like something might or like someone might have been hiding something. At three o'clock, Dennis returns to the police station with Tanya and Debbie, who wait outside. The three of them had contacted Shar Olson and were planning on spending the night at her apartment. But as soon as Dennis enters the police station, instead of being taken to the old Colt farm to grab some of their things, FBI agent Robert Alford and Chief Dennis Yarborough begin questioning him about the Averys. When Dennis does not come back out of the police station, when they had expected him to, Tanya and Debbie, they speed off to Shar's apartment. Dennis, meanwhile, calls a local attorney who belonged to the RLDS church. The attorney told him to get back to Indianapolis and out of Ohio as quickly as they could. Uh, once they were a few miles outside of Kirtland, Dennis calls Greg and tells him the police know about the Averys. At about seven o'clock in the evening, January 3rd, a massive crew assembles to dig up the barn. After the trash was moved, it was obvious where the graves were located. Uh, we, with Yarbrough and Andalisk overseeing the exhumation, two firemen begin digging. As soon as they overturn the first shovel of dirt, a stench rises from the ground. The smell only gets worse the longer they dig. A little before nine o'clock, they uncover Dennis Avery's body. Lieutenant Dunlap and Rich Kent, a supervisor at the Lake County Regional Forensic Laboratory, take control of the site on January 4th. The first two bodies, Dennis and Cheryl, are uncovered quickly. The third body was clearly a child resting on her mother's corpse. It would later be identified as Becky. How sad and so senseless. As they begin uncovering it, they find a fourth body smaller still, with its head touching the hips of Becky's corpse. It would later be determined through dental records that this fourth body was the remains of little seven-year-old Karen Avery. Uh, Karen's body was held together only by her blue jacket and jeans at this point. As they lifted the body from the ground, her left foot literally fell off. They would then find Trina's remains just a few inches from her father's corpse. At a news conference held after all of the bodies had been taken away by ambulances, prosecutor Stephen LaTourette denounced Lundgren, saying, These people are the cruelest, most inhumane people this county has ever seen. They're going to die in the electric chair for these crimes. And all the way in San Diego, Jeffrey, Alice, and Danny see that clip on TV. Uh-oh! God, God's immortal, unable to be killed, Earth God starts to fucking panic. He immediately gets up, starts packing his stuff. Alice and the kids get into the car. Jeffrey tells Danny to stay at the motel. He promises him they will come back for him soon. Once settled into a new motel, Jeffrey does head back for Danny, brings him now to a different hotel in Santa Isabel, just east of San Diego, where he had also had uh, Kathy travel to. Gotta keep second wife close by. Gotta keep fucking during all this. When Jeffrey goes back to the hotel room where Alice and the kids are staying, Alice starts begging him to kill her and the kids. Holy shit. She says she doesn't care. She just wants to die. Jeffrey decides to call Donna, Alice's mom. Have her come pick up the kids. He gives her the number of the payphone to call when she's nearby. Searching up the area code of the payphone, Donna now knows that Jeffrey is hiding somewhere in San Diego. On Saturday, January 6th, Donna pulls out of her driveway to begin the trip to San Diego. Immediately, a car full of BATF agents pull her over. They tell her they know that she is headed to Jeffrey and they've already traced the phone numbers that he has given her. Damn, here we fucking go. <laughs> Get that shit-loving motherfucker. Meanwhile, BATF agents were also watching the payphones in San Diego. And when Donna phones one, uh, 
asking for instructions. They see her grandson, Damon, walk out of a motel room, but they still don't know exactly which room the Lundgrens are in. Meanwhile, Alice keeps asking Jeffrey if God is fine with her dying. Jeffrey says that God told him that it was fine, except they have to get the children somewhere else first, and then Alice has to do it herself. They come up with a plan to put the kids on a bus, have Donna pick them up at a prearranged stop. Jeffrey then sends Damon to buy two six-packs of beer, two bottles of Excedrin PM, and a bottle of Jack Daniels. He's not planning to go out with his wife, just helping her kill herself. With Alice dead by her own hand, Jeffrey's plan is to now get Kathy and start recruiting a new group of followers. This earth god uh, sure doesn't seem to have much of a soul. Sure seems to be a cold-blooded motherfucker. Uh, Jeffrey and Alice now have one last violent sexual encounter with Jeffrey forced himself in Alice's mouth until she vomits. Nice final sexual rendezvous for her to think about while she's dying. Around 10 o'clock, they go to sleep. Next day, a few minutes before 10 in the morning, Donna now calls from Arizona. Damon picks up to tell her the plan to get him and the rest of the Lundgren children to her. Then as Damon heads back to the motel room, an undercover agent follows him, sees that the Lundgrens are camped out in room 29. As the undercover agent reports her findings at a payphone, Jeffrey comes out of the room and uses the payphone right next to hers to call Kathy. Now, Agent Van Helst, Agent Dick, orders agents to move in and make the arrests. Five agents race up to the telephone booth, grab Jeffrey, slam that pile of shit down onto the sidewalk where Van Helst sticks his revolver next to his fucking head and tells him that he is under arrest. And hail Van Helst. That moment had to have felt glorious. The man who had his followers believing he's the most powerful man in the world, an actual deity, doesn't put up much of a fight once again. Within seconds, another team of agents burst through the motel room door. Alice and Damon are handcuffed. Inside, the agents find an AR-15 assault rifle, two forty-four Magnum revolvers that belong to Damon and Jason, another pistol, and boxes of ammo. Jeffrey, Alice, and Damon are taken to jail, strip-searched, fingerprinted, and issued white paper suits to wear. They're taken to the BATF office where Van Helst will question them. Quickly, by 6.50 p.m., Alice has already agreed to make a statement about the Avery murders. During a short videotaped confession, she tells the agent interviewing her that Jeffrey killed the Averys with the belief that their murders would make him divine. She put all the blame on Jeffrey, saying that she had no choice because he was going to kill her too. Oh, you had so many choices, Skidmark, and you kept ignoring them because you thought you were so fucking important. Destined to be some kind of first lady, the, the wife of God's new prophet. So what about all the other members? What's going on with them now? Mostly, they're still unsure about coming forward to police. They all felt like Keith had fucked them and were worried about spending the rest of their lives in prison. And Keith had kind of fucked them, and they all deserved to be fucked. Go, Keith, go. Ron and Susie now goes uh, now go to the BATF office in Kansas City to confess. Ron gave a detailed account of Jeffrey's teachings, his belief that the Averys were wicked, and told agents about how the murders had gone down. Susie would give her own statement, confirming Ron's details. It was the first information that agents had gotten about how the murders had taken place since Keith Johnson hadn't actually been there at the time. Ron and Susie would now be arrested, and a SWAT team in Independence would arrest Dennis and Tanya Patrick and Debbie Oliveras. Sharon turned herself into police in Bay City, Michigan. Greg and Richard surrendered at the BATF office. Jeffrey, Ron, Greg, Richard, Damon, and Danny will all be charged with aggravated murder, punishable by death in Ohio. Dennis Patrick, Alice, Susie, Tanya, Debbie, Sharon, and Kathy will be charged with conspiracy to commit aggravated murder, which carried a penalty of up to life in prison. January 10th, 1990, Kathy Johnson and Danny Kraft are arrested. They'd been living in the mountain community of Santa Isabel and were pulled over in Jeffrey's blue Nissan truck. Jeffrey now already working on his defense strategy. He met with his public defender, Paul LaPlante, and told him that, yeah, he had murdered the Averys, but only because God told him to do it. 
LaPlante knew Jeffrey would be convicted of murdering the Averys. No doubt about that. So he focuses his strategy on beefing up the mitigating circumstances part of the trial. The part that might keep Jeffrey from getting the electric chair. Uh, LaPlante, what a wild case to fall into his lap. He had never had a case even close to that crazy before. Uh, Meanwhile, Greg and Richard uh, both have hired independent attorneys and are working on making a deal with the prosecutors. Prosecutor Stephen LaTourette was not sure which one to use as a witness against the others, though. Both seem still convinced that Jeffrey could hurt them from jail. I mean, he is God after all. He might lightning bolt them or something. In the end, La Tourette decided to cut deals with both of them. Richard Brand agrees to plead, uh, guilt, or plead guilty to murder, and Greg Winship promises to plead guilty to complicity to murder. Both charges carry prison terms of up to 15 years to life. Now Stephen La Tourette turns his attention to the group's women. In February, Alice calls him. Excuse me. She had uh, returned to Ohio on January 20th after initially refusing extradition. The reason she changed her mind was that Kathy was put in her cell block. Man, Skidmark just cannot get away from second wife. Uh, Now Alice is angry with Jeffrey again and willing to make a deal. La Tourette knew that Alice might have been just as guilty as Jeffrey, but he also knew that she wasn't at the farm on the night of the murders. So he decided to make a deal with her. The terms of the deal were that Alice would plead guilty to a charge that carried a maximum sentence of 15 to 50 years, making her eligible for parole in just as few, uh, just a few, as few, excuse me, as five years. Uh, But Judge Paul H. Mitrovich, denies that deal. There will be no mercy for Skidmark. So now Stephen LaTourette turns to Sharon Blunchley. In return for her cooperation, the prosecutor agreed to drop 10 of the 15 charges against her. She would plead guilty to five counts of conspiracy to murder, a charge that carried a sentence of five years. Dennis, Debbie, and Tanya would also all eventually agree to cooperate by testifying for the prosecution in exchange for reduced charges. By the end of the spring, La Tourette had negotiated deals with six of the group members. The only ones left were Jeffrey, Alice, Damon, Danny, Kathy, and the Luffs. Jeffrey's trial would be scheduled for June, then rescheduled for August 1990. But first, Alice's trial begins July 25th, 1990. And it was immediately a sensational trial. No one had ever been tried before in Lake County as an accomplice to mass murder. Karen Lawson and Sandra Day would act as prosecuting attorneys, both tough-talking legal veterans who specialized in prosecuting men accused of sexually abusing women and children. Alice's attorneys, meanwhile, had decided to use battered women's syndrome as part of her defense. Only a few months earlier, the Ohio Supreme Court had ruled that women accused of killing their husbands could cite long-term physical abuse by their spouses as a legitimate defense. If a woman could prove that she had killed her husband during a moment of fear and in self-defense, then she could be found innocent of murder. Alice's attorneys would claim that she had been emotionally abused for so long that she was incapable of stopping Jeffrey from murdering the Averys. Interesting. Uh, I don't like this because she fucking chose to be with this dude. She knew early on that he was fucking crazy. She is a victim of Jeffrey's 100%, but does being mistreated by this monster excuse her of any and all responsibility in the heinous crimes that that piece of shit committed? Crime she did nothing to stop. Feels like a bad slippery slope of a, of a door to open to me. To allow her to absolve herself from a whole bunch of personal responsibility. She 100% helped this dude pull off his profit con that led to these people getting killed. Well, Judge Mitrovich denies Alice's petition to include expert testimony about battered women's syndrome, saying that it didn't fit because she hadn't murdered her husband. But the judge did allow a limited amount of testimony about how Jeffrey had treated her. But the prosecutors wanted to show that Alice was an active participant in all of this, that she encouraged Jeffrey's followers to think of him as a prophet so she could feel special too. Boom, exactly. She wanted to be extra special, more important than the rest of us. And if she has to eat some shit, literally, and allow a few innocent people to be killed along the way, well then so be it. 
On the second day of Alice's trial, Lawson and uh, Andre began introducing evidence about Alice and her role as the mother of the group. Debbie Olivares was that day's star witness. She recalled how Alice frequently chastised Jeffrey's followers, how she was his personal spy, how she constantly pushed the idea that Jeffrey was a prophet. Alice knew exactly what was happening in the barn on the night of April 17th, 1989, said Debbie. On the third day of her testimony, uh, then Sharon Blunchley told jurors that Alice was lazy and expected to be treated like a queen by the group. The defense's main witness would be Alice herself. Helping Alice in the defense's eyes was her mood and appearance. She was obviously depressed. She weighed barely 100 pounds at this point. In a soft voice, she told jurors about how Jeffrey had lied to her and cheated on her. But she strangely did not mention his sexual abuse. Didn't go into any of the poop talk. Maybe too embarrassed. Uh, She went with a different strategy, and it will backfire. She claimed she thought Jeffrey was joking when he talked about killing the Averys. She claimed that she'd only left the farm on the night of the murders to run some errands. And that was bullshit. And the prosecutors went after her. Uh, If Alice was ever terrified of Jeffrey, why didn't she turn him in during the FBI raid? If she was a battered wife, why didn't Sharon and Debbie back her claims of abuse up? And how is it possible that she was the only adult in in the cult who didn't know what was happening on the night of April 17th? And there was some strong additional evidence to directly contradict Alice's statement that she had no idea what was going on. Her own previously videotaped confession. Agent Van Helst had asked her why the Averys were coming to dinner that night. And Alice had said, I suspected that it was the sacrifice. And that video would now be played at trial. And when it was played, her defense strategy was completely sunk. Still, in the closing arguments to the jury, Alice's defense reminded jurors that Alice hadn't been at the farm when the murders took place. Jeffrey, they said, was the only one to blame, drawing comparisons to Hitler. Well, Prosecutor Lawson ran with the Nazi analogy when it was her turn to speak. If Jeffrey resembled Hitler, she told jurors, then Alice mirrored Joseph Mengele, the notorious angel of death, previous suck subject at the Nazi concentration camp of Auschwitz. The jury would now deliberate for five days. August 1st, 1990, the jury finds Alice guilty of all 15 charges against her, including being guilty of complicity. Complicity is an interesting legal term. Conspiracy meant that Alice had agreed with others to kill the Averys. Complicity meant that she actively helped commit the murders, even though she wasn't physically at the farm. That's what she was guilty of. And I do not disagree, right? She helped get them to come back to visit, to come over and have dinner. She helped lead them to believe they'd be heading out to the wilderness with the rest of the team. She helped Jeffrey kill three children in addition to two adults. So fuck Alice. Jeffrey's trial began August 23rd, 1990. His lawyer would not deny that he killed the Averys. Instead, he said that Jeffrey had suffered emotional abuse as a child and that it turned him into a cold-blooded killer. Oh, come on. Mommy and daddy don't hug you enough. Tell you they love you enough so you have to become a fucking cult leader and mass murderer and beat off with your own shit. Get out of here. Uh, Jeffrey spent the first two days of his trial reading passages from the Bible, Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants. Oftentimes, he didn't even bother looking at the parade of witnesses being called. Richard Brand would testify against Jeffrey, demonstrating how Dennis Avery was murdered. Sharon and Debbie would also testify. The defense would not call any witnesses. As expected, the jury quickly found Jeff God guilty of five aggravated murders and five counts of kidnapping. On August 29th, 1990, Alice would be convicted of the maximum prison term possible, 150 years. Uh, She won't be eligible for parole until she has served 115 years, so so long, Skidmark. Uh, September 17th, the mitigation phase of Jeff God's trial begins. Now Jeffrey's attorneys blame his parents and the RLDS church for the monster he'd become. The defense suggested Don and uh, Lois had emotionally abused their son by being overly strict and demanding. For fuck's sake. The defense's first witness, Jeffrey's uncle, George Harvey Gadbury, 
described Don as a stern father, but admitted during cross-examination that he had never seen any evidence that Jeffrey had been physically abused as a child. Uh, Similarly, Jeffrey's high school friend, Sarah Stotts, said Jeffrey had felt inferior as a teen because he could never live up to his parents' expectations. But under cross-examination, Sarah admitted that she had no proof that Jeffrey had actually been mistreated at home. This weak-ass defense argument is failing as it should. Uh, Other witnesses for the defense were more successful with another line of reasoning. Some congregants from Slover Park testified that they thought Jeffrey was convinced of his own beliefs, meaning he was not conning anyone. Cult member Keith Johnson would testify along similar lines. Two expert witnesses would then further add to the credibility of all this. The first was William D. Russell, a professor of religion at Graceland College, who said that the Mormon religion often saw the rise of self-proclaimed prophets because of their belief in continuing revelation. Russell said he thought that Jeffrey did actually think that he was a prophet. The defense's final expert witness, Dr. Nancy Schmidt-Gosling, a Cincinnati-based psychologist, hammered home the point that Jeffrey was not a con man. She said Jeffrey was drawn to religion because he felt inferior and that he was emotionally abused, didn't feel accepted by other people. In order to overcome his inferiority complex, she said, he swung the other way, developing a superiority complex. In essence, Dr. Schmidt-Gosling said, Jeffrey blamed everyone but himself for his failures. He became extremely narcissistic and retreated further and further into a world of his own making. And all of this had led to him thinking he ought to murder the Averys. Prosecutor LaTourette now had just one question for the doctor. Is Jeffrey insane? Dr. Schmidt-Gosling said that Jeffrey was not insane. He knew he was breaking the law when he murdered the Averys. After that, Jeffrey had the opportunity to make a plea in Ohio. A defendant facing the death penalty is allowed to make a speech to jurors before they're sentenced. Usually an opportunity to apologize and beg for mercy. Oh, but Jeffrey, oh, king shit, Jeff got. Not about to do that. The Lord would soon spare him from the torment of lesser men. Jeffrey would make his speech at 10 a.m. the morning of September 19th, and it will be glorious. He wore a light brown jacket, brown polyester pants from the Salvation Army. I'm picturing kind of a long-haired Better Call Saul vibe going on. Uh, Consulted a yellow legal pad. And he began by, this is his opening line. I am a prophet of God. I am even much more than that. Much, much more. Oh, fuck yeah. He'd speak for five hours straight. (laughs) Describing his visions. At one point, literally quoting the movie Highlander. I love that that fucking happened in real life. There can be only one. And he talked about the pattern and chiasmus. He never once apologized for killing the Averys. He added his rambling discourse by quoting the Book of Mormon. Uh, repent ye repent, he advised the jurors. For the kingdom of God is close at hand. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. I bet that crazy fuck actually thought that the skies were about to open up and that God would smite his enemies uh, or give that fire, lightning, and earthquake power to him that he once talked about. Thinking about who Jeffrey envisioned when he imagined his powerful self in his head made me uh, picture some ridiculous old Saturday morning cartoon. Saturday mornings at 9 a.m., directly following Thundercats. It's Prophet Jeffrey the Earth God and the Highlanders' first blood. One miraculous man has been tasked by the Universe God to protect the Earth from forces of evil. In order to redeem Zion, Prophet Jeffrey the Earth God must first behead eight other immortal seers created at the dawn of time. There can be only one! And he also must wage war against law enforcement controlled by the Dark Lord, trying to force him to stop fighting the most important battle of all time. Nothing is over! You just don't turn it off! Join Jeffrey's fight to save the world. 
Don't miss a single episode of the most important cartoon of all time, Prophet Jeffrey the Earth God and the Highlander's First Blood. And be sure and tell him what a beautiful boy he is. You know, something like that. Anyway, after a bit of uh, Prophet Jeffrey's crazy talk, the jury took less than two hours to decide that Jeffrey Lundgren would indeed get the death penalty. On September 21st, 1990, Judge Parks officially sentences Jeffrey to die in Ohio's electric chair. And the execution date is going to be coming up quick, real quick. April 17th, 1991. Uh, This date was symbolic. It was the two-year anniversary of the day he had murdered the the Averys. But unlike, uh, or sorry, excuse me, but highly unlike that Jeff was going to die that day, he still had his appeals. And the state of Ohio had not executed anyone since 1963. Seemed unlikely that Jeffrey would, in fact, ever die at the state's hands when his sentence was handed down. Jeffrey, though, he now did believe he was going to die, kind of, as much as a God can die. Jeffrey told his lawyers that his death sentence was actually preordained by God. He said that if Ohio executed him, God would literally exterminate all of the world's people and simply start over with better, more faithful ones. And uh, he would be there to lead them. And I bet that brave new world of Jeffries was going to have so much poop in it. Uh, For the prosecution, there was still one more case. LaTourette had offered Jeff and Alice's son, Damon Lundgren, a plea bargain that would have required the 19-year-old to serve 30 years in prison. But Damon rejected the offer and pled innocent. In the ensuing trial, Damon's lawyers claimed that Damon was dominated by his dad, learned about the killings just hours before they took place. They also said Damon did not participate directly in the shooting deaths. Prosecutors counted with testimony by Sharon, Debbie, Greg, and Richard, all of whom testified to Damon's direct involvement. After deliberating for eight hours, a jury found Damon guilty of aggravated murder. During the mitigation stage, the defense called 16 witnesses, including Dale Luffman and Donna Keeler. The witnesses said that Damon was basically his father's servant. In in a final 15-minute plea, Damon begged the jury not to sentence him to death. He said, my whole life has been doing what my father told me to do. I just want to tell you that I don't want to die. I have a whole lot of things I can contribute to society. I'd like a chance to make up any way I can for some of the things my father did. The jury recommended that he be sentenced to life in prison. And I do feel very sorry for Damon, right? He did not choose to be born into so much madness. Just a, a, a bad, you know, lottery ticket draw, bad, bad hand of cards, and he got born into Lundgren's crazy house. Like we said earlier, Jeffrey's uh, other followers, except for Ron Luff, agreed to plead guilty to reduce charges in order to avoid trials. Because prosecutors found them remorseful, Dennis and Tanya Patrick were given one year of probation each. Because Kathy was pregnant, possibly with Jeff's baby, her case was delayed during the summer. In June, she'd given birth to a daughter, and then she'll later plead guilty to obstructing justice since she hadn't told anyone about the killings. But Kathy didn't seem to show much remorse. At her sentencing, she'd say, I'm guilty of loving Jeff Lundgren. I'm not guilty of having assisted with anything he carried out. Oh boy. December 5th, Ron Love's trial begins in Toledo. He'll be found guilty of aggravated murder and kidnapping and sentenced to 170 years in prison. So what happened to the Lundgrens? Alice was sent to the Ohio Reformatory for Women in Maryville. Uh, Jeffrey was taken to death row at Ohio's maximum security prison in Lucasville. The minor children of the Lundgrens were placed under the care of Alice's parents, Ralph and Donna Keeler. The fucking Keelers! Sweet but spineless people. Uh, The bodies of the Averys were returned to a suburb of Independence for burial. About 250 or 240 mourners attended the memorial service held at a restoration branch of the RLDS. The minister did not mention Jeffrey Lundgren, but in his eulogy, Elder Garth McCullough warned mourners about following false prophets. We must carefully lead, he said lest we are led astray. 
Something bordering on irony there for me, a church rooted in continuing revelation warning about following false prophets, right? So uh, uh, do believe in new prophets, believe in new prophets given the seal of legitimacy by the church, but ignore everything else, even though no one in the church's founding ever gave Joseph Smith the real seal of approval. Believe that there can be prophets just like Joseph who altered an existing religion, but also don't believe in any new prophets who want to alter an existing religion. Huh. June 7th, 1991, Alice divorces Jeffrey from prison. Not that it really fucking matters at this point. By August 2006, Jeffrey has exhausted his appeals and the Ohio Supreme Court sets October 24th uh, as Lundgren's new execution date. On October 17th, 2006, Judge Gregory Gregory L. Frost issues a temporary delay of Lundgren's execution. And the reason might surprise you. Lundgren attempted to join a lawsuit with five other Ohio death row inmates challenging the state's death penalty law, claiming that due to his obesity, the lethal injection would be be, uh, particularly painful and would amount to cruel and unusual punishment. I get the fuck out of here. As cruel and unusual as, I don't know, ramming your dick up your wife's ass with only her blood is lube, Jeffrey? Or pushing your shit-stained dick in her mouth, you disgusting fucking sadist? What a clown. State Attorney General Jim Metro quickly appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit in Cincinnati, and the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals quickly issues an order allowing the execution to go forward. Good. Cannot wait to flush that dude down the toilet. On October 24, 2006, Jeffrey Lundgren is executed at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville. He's 56. He had been so certain that he was going to win a delay that he napped much of the morning. But then, of course, that didn't happen. At 10.06, uh, or excuse me, 10.06, yeah, a.m., uh, he requests his special meal to be turkey, white meat only, mashed potatoes and gravy, yeast rolls, salad with tomatoes and radishes, with wishbone French dressing, Pepsi and pumpkin pie with whipped cream for dessert, which actually, uh, that all does sound delicious. Then Lundgren walks up the 17 steps to the death chamber without the well-worn Bible that he used uh, used to control his cult, which formed after he broke from the reorganized church. As a dozen people watched from the other side of a glass wall, Lundgren issued a 15-second statement, right, his, of his final words that began with, nothing is over. You just don't turn it off. And then he closed it with, there can be only one. No, it, uh, it mentioned fellow cult member Catherine Johnson, his second wife. He said, I profess my love for God, my family, for my children, for Kathy. I am because you are. Hey, I'm sure his kids were real comforted by that, especially his son, Damon, currently spending the prime years of his life in prison. Surprisingly, he didn't mention poop even one time. Uh, among those witnessing the execution was former prosecutor, now U.S. Congressman Stephen LaTourette, now at the time of the execution. Uh, he'd be a member of the U.S. House of Representatives in Ohio for almost 20 years. And not in Ohio, sorry, from Ohio. Uh, in a statement, LaTourette said that the killings were a cowardly act committed to silence those who began to doubt Lundgren's status as a deity. Even after 16 years, I still can't get the vision out of my head of a seven-year-old or of seven-year-old Karen Avery, LaTourette said. As we removed the parents from the pit, we all said we didn't want there to be children. Other witnesses included Cheryl Avery's younger brother, Donald Bailey of Missouri. In an act of defiance, he walked up close to the death chamber's glass window to ensure that Lundgren knew he was there. Yeah, I fucking love it. Watch that fucker be put down like the rabbit dog he was. Moments after the lethal combination of three drugs was injected into his arms, Lundgren heaved a big sigh, his eyes fluttered, then he was still. Minutes later at 10.26 a.m., he was pronounced dead. Following his death, the heavens shockingly did not open up. God smited no one, uh, just another in a long line of false prophets dying in the world, not really giving a shit. Nobody claimed his body. He was buried in the prison cemetery with no one attending other than the people that dug the hole and covered it up. 
And with that, let's get out of this so insane timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So uh, wrapping this up a bit, sharing some uh, final thoughts. First, where are the former members of the Lundgren cult now? Well, Jeffrey Lundgren is, of course, dead. Uh, Skidmark, a.k.a. Alice, uh, remains in prison at the Ohio Reformatory for Women. She will be eligible for parole in 2092. Uh, she's 72 right now, so safe to say she will probably die in prison. But that patriarch at summer camp did tell her that she would marry a, uh, you know, important person who would help bring forth God's kingdom, someone great in the eyes of a, a fellow man. So I feel like there's a pretty good chance that a real prophet will probably break her out, maybe restore her youth, possibly not even poop on her. You know, she's probably still destined for great things. Uh, her son, Damon Lundgren, was sentenced to 120 years to life on four counts each of aggravated murder and kidnapping. He is incarcerated. I'm not entirely sure why uh, it would have been a lot of probably boring details, why it was four, not five counts, but uh, he is incarcerated at the Mansfield Correctional Institution and will be eligible for parole in 2098. He's now 52. So also going to die in prison. And again, I do feel terrible for this guy. You know, Papa Jeff really fucked his family over. Better prophecies, better scat play, Papa Jeff. Uh, his three youngest children lost their father, mother, and oldest brother to incarceration and or execution. And he maybe had another kid he was never around for with Kathy Johnson. Not sure based on sources if she, uh, you know, if the, if the child was his or not. It's just alluded to in a few uh, sources, but never talked about in detail. Ron Luff remains in prison at the Allen Correctional Institution in Lima, Ohio. Not Lima like it's supposed to be, where he's serving a 170 years to life sentence. He'll be eligible for parole in 2048. At age 62, he might get out when he turns 87. His cold days are probably behind him. Daniel, or Danny Kraft, was sentenced to 50 years to life on five counts of aggravated murder, three counts of kidnapping. Like Damon, he's serving it out at the Mansfield Correctional Institution with a projected parole date of next year, actually. One of there's some uh, jealousy there that uh, Danny's getting out and not Damon. He's 58, so he could actually still live some life once he gets out. Bet he won't be uh, following any more profits. I hope not. March 29th, 2010, Ohio Department of Corrections Parole Board released 46-year-old Richard Brand on parole. So Dick's been living free a while now. Uh, that year would also see the parole of Greg Winship, now 50. December 30th, 2010, Sharon Blunchley, parole January 4th, 2011. Debbie Olivares, paroled the same day. Susan Luff quickly followed January 11th, 2011. Kathy Johnson will only be charged with one year for obstruction of justice, released back on August 23rd, 1991. Dennis and Tanya Patrick would only get 18 months suspended sentence and a one-year period of probation. Most of them would finally begin to think critically about how they had placed their trust in Jeffrey Lundgren. In 2015, at age 55, the still incarcerated Ron Luff claims he was so brainwashed by Lundgren that he never questioned his actions on the day of the killings. Luff told uh, uh, in the media outlet, a guard once asked me what it was like to be brainwashed. I immediately responded, it's a lot more captivating than this place. He added, shedding that mindset has afforded me a great sense of freedom, even in the captivity of incarceration. Love said he hopes the murders hold lessons that will help prevent future tragedies. My hope and prayer is that we can grow from this type of tragedy, he said, and learn not only what cultivates such bizarre and self-destructive behavior, but ultimately how best to diffuse it. Well, it sounds like he's doing a lot of reading in there. Very well-spoken. Uh, the second episode of the docuseries Deadly Cults on the Oxygen Network would air on February 17th, 2019 and feature interviews with many of the group's former members. 
Keith Johnson, who was never arrested and granted immunity for informing on the cult, said he never thought he'd end up in a cult. Once I was there, I didn't know how to extract myself from my family. Debbie Olivares, now Debbie Crozen, would say, I realized that I thought I turned my life over to God, and God just turned out to be a man that was really mentally ill. Yeah, uh, bingo. Uh, 2007, the barn where the Averys were murdered was destroyed. The non-denominational New Promise Church bought the land, tore down the old structure, much to the relief of the wider community. So good on New Promise Church. What the free former members are up to now is hard to figure out. Living quiet, cult-free lives, hopefully. Hopefully not giving their money to some other con artist in exchange for a special role in the end times. Hopefully not living out in the woods with a psychopath waiting to meet God, wondering if and when their prophet is going to kill or fuck them. Yee, yee, man, Jeffrey Lundgren. What a completely insane story. He did so much crazy shit from his crazed sermons and teachings of chiasmus to his sexual deviancy to the murder of the Avery family. In some way or another, Lundgren checked off all the boxes on the cult leader list, though he did it in a very unique and out of order way. Like many cult leaders, he forced his followers to worship him as a prophet and not to question any of his strange, confusing, and ever-changing teachings or beliefs. The date and criteria for the beginning of the end times kept changing. While some of his followers became disillusioned and left, many kept rolling with the nonsensical punches. That sunk cost fallacy continued to bite him in the ass. Jeffrey controlled every aspect of his followers' lives. He separated them from their families out in the literal wilderness. He separated husbands from wives. He brainwashed followers by refusing to back down from his assertions and going over his secret reading revelations over and over and over again until they relented and just finally agreed with him. But what he didn't do was declare himself as a prophet right off the bat. More of a slow burn uh, than it normally is with these guys. Uh, He did insinuate that he was a prophet early on in line with RLDS teachings about continuous revelation but didn't assert that he was the prophet for years. He slowly revealed more and more of his visions to his followers, while Alice Lundgren kept buttering them up. Unlike a lot of the other cults we've covered, his followers were primed to believe that he was having visions from God because that is commonplace in the RLDS community. In a world where all kinds of people are having celestial visions, well, it's not unusual for Jeffrey to have them too, right? Just another Latter-day Saint. But then his visions became more and more grand. He wasn't just someone having personal revelations. No, he was someone chosen by God, given revelations for all of humanity to do something great, to do the greatest thing a prophet can ever do in the Mormon faith, redeem Zion, begin about the new millennium where Christ will reign as king and the devil will be bound for a thousand years before being released. And then the righteous and their God will fight and defeat forces of evil in one final Lord of the Rings, Dungeons and Dragons, medieval type apocalyptic battle. Nothing is over. You just don't turn it off. Like many other cult leaders, he also had everyone, minus a couple exceptions, live with him on a farm slash cult compound where he forced him to do chores, work to support him and his family while he and Alice mostly relaxed, right? Spent money, had literally dirty sex that sounded like it was a lot more pleasurable for Jeffrey than Alice. But he started this off before revealing just how truly important he was, right? On par with Jesus, more powerful even. The debilitating work routines of the rest of the followers, long hours of work every day, then chores, further hours of studying scripture probably did a lot to break down any cognitive resistance they might have. Farm work and confusing, rambling sermons about scripture and visions kept them tired and compliant, more likely to not wake up from their collective fever dream. Jeffrey's followers so desperately wanted, as most if not all cult members do, to meet God, to understand the divine, to receive celestial assurances that they were members of the Lord's inner circle. God would be revealed to them and they would rejoice and be rewarded with eternal bliss and salvation. Like many cult leaders, Jeffrey told his members what to think, what they could buy with their own money, who to date or marry, claiming that it was all there in the scripture if you knew how to read it. 
Finally, Jeffrey used his polarized us versus them mentality to convince his followers to form a plan to take over the Kirtland Temple. Dale Luffman was the boogeyman, the sinner standing in between them and Zion. But then, gosh dang, God just changed his mind in a new vision. Jeffrey would abandon that plan and convince them to murder the Avery family instead. They needed to execute an entire family in order to purge the sin from their group so they could finally meet God. A blood sacrifice, a blood atonement was in order. No one could argue with Jeffrey about how crazy this was. It was either stay and believe or disagree, right? And get the fuck out. No one could tell Jeffrey anything. He was a prophet. And then he was an immortal and invincible God, an earth God. After the Averys were murdered on April 17th, 1989, Jeffrey and his followers would trash the barn where the Averys were buried, caravan to West Virginia, where they headed out into the wilderness. As foretold in one of Jeffrey's visions, it was in the wilderness now where they would meet God. But that, of course, wouldn't happen. Instead, Earth God Jeffrey pressured the women of the group into increasingly strange sexual situations after making them complicit in five murders. Not usually the order of cult events. Killings usually come up after a lot of strange sex stuff. Jeffrey's strange stuff, including forcing the women to dance for him to cleanse their husband's sins, while he also searched for a literally magical vagina he dreamt about. And he did stuff like have his wife cover him in his own shit or eat his own shit and then demand his wife kiss him. Right? Showbiz! That's how they do it in West Virginia! Jeffrey would eventually decide to take Kathy Johnson as his second wife, claiming uh, that chiasmus meant he was entitled to two women. God always repeated himself. This, coupled with the stress of living off the grid and the guilt from the murders, and also Jeffrey's renewed threats of murder, caused many members of the group to nearly have nervous breakdowns out in the woods. Jeffrey and the group would move several times again before Jeffrey decided to leave with Alice and their kids for San Diego, where he secretly hoped to leave Alice and run off with Kathy, start a brand new cult. But that, thank God, would not happen. Instead, authorities would get a tip-off from former member Keith Johnson and begin investigating the old barn where they would unearth the Avery family and discover the hideous extent of the group's murderous activities. And the FBI and other authorities would launch a nationwide search for the Lundgrens. Finally, Jeffrey, Allison, Damon Lundgren were arrested January 7th, 1990. The younger Lundgren children were given to Donna, Alice's mom, and most of the cult members would soon stand trial. And then Jeffrey was executed, well, excuse me, sentenced to death, then executed, October 24, 2006, Damon, Alice, Daniel, and Ron still in prison. The rest of the cult members have been let out on parole or weren't sentenced in the first place. And now before I share a few final thoughts about Jeff and Alice, let's talk just a little bit more about literally shitty sex. It's been a minute since we've talked about, uh, oh man, coprophilia, aka uh, scatophilia or scatology, an intense interest in pleasure in feces and defecation, especially as a source of sexual arousal. Is this just kink? Am I some high horse riding stuffy moralist daring to mock it? Or is it an actual form of mental illness? Well, the jury is out. But the world of psychology does seem to lean, albeit slightly, towards deeming wanting someone to say, cover your body in your own shit and then eat some of that shit while you have your lover kiss you, while you right have the shit in your mouth and then suck said shit off your dick as a wee bit fucked up. Maybe if you're craving that, you're not the most sexually uh, well-adjusted meat sack at the kink party. According to some studies, and I will say very little research has been done about this, it's strongly associated with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, It's an unnatural fixation that can develop in early childhood, a powerful urge to do something that is taboo. A form of this, a predilection, if you will, can begin in early childhood when toddlers take pleasure holding or retaining and then expelling their stool or urine. And then uh, coprophilia can be reinforced by masturbation and may become a sexual fetish by the teen pubescent years and that line of thinking does track with jeff got right he started masturbating with his fecal matter when he was 13 
And uh, one source stated that most men with the disorder hide their fetish in more traditional sexual activity with women. They may prefer that women use strap-ons during sex. The man will usually forego the use of enemas to evacuate his bowels before sex. And Jeffrey did that, kind of. He didn't hide his preference, not really. I mean, he shit on Alice (laughs) kind of out of nowhere before the strap-on use, a.k.a. pegging. But he did then want Alice to peg him, roughly, and a landlord at one of the places they were evicted from found a dirty dildo caked with feces, likely used on him. And tracking with Jeffrey loving this stuff and Alice hating it, at least one study has found that it is 20 times more common in men than women. Women are much more likely to be repulsed by this. Still possibly tracking with Jeffrey, at least one study found that people with paraphilia seem to have grown up in dysfunctional environments and to have had early sexual experiences that limited their ability to be sexually stimulated by consensual sexual activity. Jeffrey's parents were very religious and super uptight. People who wouldn't even let him sit on the couch unless company was present. They were very concerned with optics and pride, with public image. If Jeffrey did anything growing up that they deemed as taboo or dirty, like messing around with his poop in any way, I can absolutely 100% see Lois and Donnie freaking the fuck out and shaming the hell out of him, which could have helped him double down on an already unnatural interest in poop, especially if he was mentally ill, which I do think he was. Coprophilia generally classified as a form of a paraphilia, uh, a condition characterized by abnormal sexual desires, typically involving extreme or dangerous activities. And it has sometimes been lumped in with more serious sexual disorders like necrophilia and pedophilia. Does that mean that if you want to take a shit on someone or be shit on by someone and that arouses you, that you're also likely to want to start fucking the dead or fucking kids or fucking a dead poop covered kid? No, thank God. Thank God, no. It means that it is also some form of a disorder, as in not normal and potentially harmful. Most people try to avoid working shit into their sex life because it is actually full of all kinds of harmful bacteria that especially when inserted into a vagina can often cause infections. Exactly why girls uh, are taught to wipe front to back, not back to front. Not a good thing to stick some poop in your front butt. Hepatitis A, hepatitis E, cholera, adenovirus, E. coli, and more can be spread by fecal matter. Doesn't mean you're a bad person if you're into scat play. Not at all. But also, I'm not going to pretend that wanting to shit on someone is no kinkier than having your ass slapped, role-playing, be tie- being tied up, even anal sex, wanting to be pegged, having a threesome, foursome, double penetration, etc. Right? Gigi Engel, a sex expert who consults for lifestyle condoms and many other places, uh, like the dating app 3Fun, says, This kink is almost as extreme as it gets. Even in the kink community, an already marginalized community in itself. People who are into this are marginalized further. Even the most sex positive people, people who don't believe in shaming others, will often think scat is disgusting and say so. (laughs) So if you want to bring your poop into the bedroom, fine. We all have our shit, pun intended. But maybe also talk to a therapist about it. Maybe look into where that interest is coming from. Do you want to be degraded? Do you want to degrade others? Right? Maybe worth peeking under the mental hood to take a look at why you want that. Maybe have some self-esteem issues. Maybe have some sadistic issues. Jeff sure could be sexually sadistic. Why did he want to degrade Alice? Did Jeffrey really want to shit on mommy Lois? Who the fuck knows? Right? You know who will never, ever judge you when it comes to scat play, though? Besides Albert Fish. Captain Whiskerhorn of Captain Whiskerhorn's Pony Play Emporium, Tax Shop and Saddlery. And luckily, he has a sale for all you poop lovers. Howdy, partners and ponies. Is here's your good buddy Tom Anderson, aka Captain Whiskerhorn, your trusted source of sexy bits, bridles, harnesses, halters, hooks, masks, anal plug tails, and more for the Quad State area for the past 20 years. 
I'm sure you've heard of uh, Don Doberman's advertisements lately. Don, of course, being the owner-proprietor of the no-good, two-bit, flea-market, bottom-shelf, doggone Don's puppet play megastore butt dungeon and kennel. He's been peddling the biggest sale in the Quad State area for everything and anything related to scat play. Well, I'm making that claim nothing short of a bald-faced lie today. No one will beat our prices this week on scat play accessories. Included but not limited to. Sniff dildo anus gas masks. Pooped in pennies. Poop-resistant latex bodysuits. Poop-absorbent cotton bodysuits. Custom scat play toilets that allow you to put your face where the water would normally be. And poop-scented sex spray in five intense shit scents. Mountain Man Musk, Hobo Chili, Lavender Librarian, Hard Candy Nano, and Rancid Infected Rotten Egg Stomach Flu Anus. There's only room for one sex fetish superstore in the Quad State area, and it's Captain Whisker Horns Pony Play Emporium, Tax Shop, and Salary. Hi, all Sasparilla! Away! Well, that's been too long since we've heard from old Tom Anderson, aka, AKA Captain Whisker Horn. What a guy! What a, what a guy! What a store! Anyway, before that additional sneaky sponsor ad, I was talking about mental health. Uh, and I asked early in today's uh, episode, was Jeffrey insane? Did he really believe at least a good chunk of his nonsense? I think he did. I really think he did. You know, he, he also uh, was not legally insane. He knew what he was doing was wrong. He knew how to, to change his visions conveniently. But I do think he was crazy. Even when he talked to leaving Alice and running off with Kathy, I still don't think that was 100% a total scam. I think he might have actually convinced himself that God would show himself Zion would be redeemed if he just had the right faithful followers. When he went up alone to the top of the mountain to talk to God, did he actually see anything, have visions? If he was as mentally ill as I think he was, I bet he at least could have confused imagining things with some shit actually happening. I mean, think about how consistently fucking nuts this dude was. He had very few friends growing up. Most of his peers considered him socially off. He rarely smiled. And then think about how batshit he was when he started courting Alice. The whole staring at her through the fucking window while she sat in class, telling her what she needed to go, uh, what to wear, when she needed to go to bed. That all to me doesn't just read as controlling. It reads as something was really off with this guy. Some kind of personality disorder, right? That whole narcissistic superiority complex Dr. Schmidt Gosling talked about at his trial. And this guy, he believed he was destined for great things. One of God's chosen prophets right up until he was executed. And out of all the people this nut could have ended up with, he ended up with a woman who was also extremely delusional. Someone who might be a little mentally ill herself, right? Alice Keeler, the girl who thought she was destined to marry a very important man who directly would help bring forth God's kingdom, aka redeem Zion. And I would guess she talked to Jeffrey about that a lot, fed him her delusion, fed him her bullshit while she, uh, you know, uh, also fed him sometimes uh, his literal shit or he fed her. Uh, sorry, it's going to take me a long time to stop thinking about the poop stuff. And the combination of all this led Jeffrey, I believe, to think he really was an important prophet. And it led to her continuing to support his claims of divinity, no matter how fucking crazy his words and actions were. A perfect or really imperfect storm of feelings of superiority, delusions of grandeur, prophet-focused religious theology, deviant sexual desires, and some mental illness all combined to create the unnamed cult of Jeffrey Lundgren and the Kirtland killings. And that is all I got on the story I found intensely captivating. Now let's head to today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, on the night of April 17th, 1989, Jeffrey Lundgren and his followers murdered Dennis and Cheryl Avery along with their three daughters, Trina, Becky, and Karen. 
This came after Jeffrey insisted that the reason God had not come back to earth, the reason that there was no point in trying to take over the Kirtland Temple was because of the sinfulness of the members of his group, sins that included some of them retaining their own paychecks for themselves and living apart from the Lundgren cult, the nerve of those weak-ass cult members. Then as the group prepared to go into the wilderness to meet God with even the Averys believing they were going along, Lundgren had his followers dig a pit in the barn. And on the night of April 17th, Lundgren invited the Averys over for dinner, proceeded to have his followers lead them one by one to the barn where they were duct taped, thrown into a pit before Jeffrey shot them multiple times. Then his followers buried them under a bunch of garbage and the bodies wouldn't be discovered until January of 1990. Number two, the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or RLDS, now called the Community of Christ, played a big role in Jeffrey Lundgren's beliefs and justifications that others made on his behalf. Unlike the mainstream Mormon LDS church, the RLDS church taught that God is still waiting for the redemption of Zion, that it wasn't in Utah, like Brigham Young said, right? That the faithful are still waiting for a prophet to reveal where Zion will be. The RLDS also heavily emphasizes that God can speak to any individual person to tell them important and holy information. Alice Lundgren would come to believe, based on a revelation she heard at camp, that she would marry a man who would go on to do great things for the church. He literally said, you shall marry a companion whom I have prepared to bring forth my kingdom. And Alice, sad, delusional Alice, took that revelation very seriously. This belief would strengthen within her as Jeffrey became more and more convinced he was a prophet and she even helped convince others he was a prophet too. Jeffrey and Alice also framed their early meetings as scriptural study groups, another foundation of the RLDS community, something that people were familiar with. Other RLDS concepts like living in common endeavor, AKA communes would help Jeffrey take advantage of his followers by having them give him their paychecks and making them wholly dependent on him. Cult, cult, cult. And number three, Jeffrey Lundgren would be found guilty of kidnapping and murder and sentenced to death after trying unsuccessfully to, uh, to delay his execution, even claiming that he was too fat to receive the lethal injection. He was executed on October 24th, 2006 as per God's glorious plan. Jeffrey told his lawyers that his death sentence was actually preordained by God he said that if Ohio executed him, God would exterminate all the world's people and simply start over with better, more faithful people. Uh, still waiting for that over 16 years out. Number four, Jeffrey Lundgren claimed that God showed him a vagina in a dream and told him to find it. Huh? That sounds like God. He'd say that it was Kathy Johnson, his second wife's vagina, once he uh, examined his group's vaginas. Others like Alice and Keith Johnson thought this was pretty convenient. Keith would end up being so angry over Kathy's betrayal that he will turn Jeffrey in for the murders eventually. Jeffrey Lundgren, king shit, god of the earth and Yahweh's greatest living prophet brought down by a jilted spouse and some dream pussy. Number five, new info. These crimes would be called the Mormon blood atonement killings by the author of our primary source, Pete Early. And they were. And they're also not the only blood atonement killings carried out in the history of Mormonism. In its early days, blood atonement was once a teaching of early LDS adherents. Uh, Brigham Young first preached about blood atonement back in the 1850s. Blood atonement taught that murder is so bad that the only way the murderer can pay for their sins and not become a son of perdition, doomed to a life of eternal separation from God and the outer darkness, really kind of hell, is to be sacrificed. This was sometimes called blood for blood punishment because it was mostly used to punish murder, but not always just murder. Uh, since theology rarely remains constant and mutates and warps over time, it was used for nonviolent crimes at various points, uh, like denying or leaving the church or marrying someone of a different race, for fuck's sake. Warren Jeffs, convicted child rapist and imprisoned leader of the LDS splinter group FLDS, a polygamous sect based in Arizona and Utah, uh, has allegedly indicated his desire to implement this doctrine in his church. 
Former FLDS member Robert Richter reported to the Phoenix News Times, Phoenix New Times, that in his sermons, Jeffs repeatedly alluded to blood atonement for serious sins such as murder and adultery. It's <laughs> quite a gap there between murder and adultery. Uh, Richter also claims that he was asked to design a thermostat for a high temperature furnace that would be capable of destroying DNA evidence if such atonements were to ever take place. A little bit worrisome. Uh, and another piece of shit, Ervil LeBaron, former leader and prophet of the allegedly no longer in existence Mormon splinter group, the Church of the Lamb of God, initiated a series of blood atonement killings, including the murder of his own brother, which ultimately resulted in his being sentenced to life in prison. Before his death in prison, LeBaron wrote a document, which he called the Book of the New Covenants. And this document listed a number of people who had been disloyal and, quote, deserved to die. Copies of the list fell into the hands of LeBaron's followers, who proceeded to administer what they called blood atonement to these individuals. Finally, a recent show on FX, Under the Banner of Heaven, describes the blood atonement killing of Brenda Wright Lafferty and her baby daughter. Sounds like Jeffrey Lundgren and his small band of followers, not the last Mormon offshoot cult we will be covering here. A lot more crazy out there still waiting for their stories to be retold. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Kirtland cult killings and Jeffrey Lundgren have been sucked. Took two weeks to do it, but I think the extra ride was worth it. A uh, big thank you to the Bad Magic team once again for helping production. Starting with Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to Tyler C. for directing, producing today. Thanks to Bitelixer for upkeep on the Time Suck app. The Art Warlock, Logan Keith, creating the merch, managing badmagicmerch.com, helping run our socials along with Tyler and Ryan Handelsman and his team. Thanks to Sophie Evans for the initial research once again. Also thanks to the All Seen Eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page. The Mod Squad making sure Discord keeps running smooth. Everyone over on the Time Suck and Bad Magic Reddit uh, threads. I don't know why I paused there. Uh, now let's talk next week. Uh, this week was technically supposed to be a Space Lizard voted in topic, and it got pushed because this topic expanded into a two-parter. So now next week, don't forget to uh, pay tribute, gather up your crew, look out for anyone trying to whack you because we are joining the Irish mob or sucking them. Probably that. Uh, while our cultural image of a typical gangster might be an Italian-American guy out of some movie like The Godfather or Goodfellas, the Irish have been part of the U.S.'s underworld for even longer than the Italians, going all the way back to the 1840s. Between 1845 and 1855, more than 1.5 million adults and kids left Ireland to seek refuge in America. Most were desperately poor, many suffering from starvation and disease, all because of a pest that killed a, you know, off a lot of Ireland's main crop of potatoes, leaving people struggling to survive. And many of them brought that hard scrabble ethos that they'd used to survive throughout these hard times in Ireland to the U.S., Though most of them were perfectly law-abiding citizens, some of them, a decent chunk to be honest, protected themselves, you know, by any means necessary. For some, it was merely aligning themselves with the mob boss in exchange for their vote at the polls so they could get food and shelter during the first chaotic weeks in America. Others took it a step further, got employed by mob bosses. Still, others became professional racketeers, gang members, prominent mobsters, trying to make their American dream outside a silly old law and order. And many of them, at least until they got whacked or had to go into hiding, achieved exactly that. So what was the Irish mob? Who were its members? How did it work? What was its downfall? All that and more next week on Time Suck. Right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. Uh, starting off with a cool connection to the Three Mile Island episode, highly radioactive sucker Joel Schmuland. Schmuland. <laughs> Schmuland? 
Schmulent, uh, writes in, so here's a fun fact about me regarding the latest suck, Three Mile Island nuclear disaster. My mom used to work at the Arco nuclear plant just outside of Idaho Falls, Idaho. She was once tasked with cleaning and removing the asbestos, the asbestos insulation from the plant. Excuse me. She worked there for over 15 years and the timing of her work there is actually quite interesting. She started working there in 1990. Then in mid-1991, she got pregnant with a future space lizard, yours truly. And she continued to work there all nine months of her pregnancy until I was born in the spring of 1992. That's right. I was a developing little space lizard whilst my mother went into radioactive areas while also cleaning asbestos from the rafters. But don't worry. I came out a bouncing healthy baby boy, maybe born a month early at 5.5 pounds and 19 inches long, and I'm completely fine. My mother wore the correct PPE and my preemie status had nothing to do with her occupation. So the doctors stay, say. Now as a 30-year-old adult, I don't think my mother's occupation whilst pregnant has had any effect on me. I may be wildly ADHD and ended up growing taller than both my parents. Also, four of my toes all grow longer than the big toe, but that's just genetics, right? Ha ha, right? Either way, hail Nimrod and nuclear energy. Well, Joel, uh, are you the atomic man, generic action figure? Uh, thank you for sharing this. Uh, yeah, you would think if that power plant was really that dangerous, you'd be all kinds of fucked up. I'm sure there are a lot of people convinced to this day that if a pregnant woman cleaned up a reactor, even a closed reactor that had been deactivated 25 years earlier and cleaned asbestos the entire time she was pregnant, she would certainly give birth to a mutant. Nope, just a dude with maybe some fucked up toes. I'm <laughs> glad you and your mom are not glowing. Uh, next up, a very quick message from increasingly mushed mouth meat sack Tyler Hobbs writes fuck you mr cummins i can't read i excuse me i can't read jesus i can't read i can't read mislead without reading it as misled you get it anymore so thanks for ruining that word with your damn mush mouth you son of a bitch thank you tyler it is spreading it is spreading uh yes even aware of doing this i still read misled instead of misled every single time i see that word initially and i have to make a mental correction uh it does still kind of play though right Right? You get misled, you get misled. I think the gist is the same. Now a much lengthier update from Russian Ministry of Propaganda agent, Justin Davidson, who writes, Hello, Dan. My name is Justin. I'm a big Time Suck fan. Started listening a little under a year ago and I've made it through about half the episodes. I pick and choose each one rather than listen chronologically. And I just finished The Night Witches. The amount of information and humor you squeeze in each episode is impressive, to say the least. Outside of the content, perhaps the thing I've enjoyed most is observing your readiness to modify your views on a given topic as you educate yourself about it. Education forces our eyes to open, and you, sir, haven't blinked, with just one exception. Russians. Maybe the whole thing is a joke I'm unable to pick up on, but it seems like you actually believe Russians cannot be trusted because of the nation's communist history. In reality, Russians are human beings subject to their government, and many are no more approving of our of or attached to its ideals than you are. Regarding wars between countries, I think most people would agree the aggressor is almost always in the wrong. Yeah, like a lot of the times. Not always, but yeah. Uh, In fact, I challenge you to think of an exception to that rule. Since the turn of the century, yes, Russia has both fueled and perpetrated violent upheaval in other states, but ensuring fair treatment of its citizens who culturally, uh, but ensuring fair treatment of citizens who culturally identify as Russian uh, is always a factor in these conflicts. Supposedly, yes. Uh, The Russian government had at least one legitimate and personal reason to get involved. In the same time frame, however, American-led NATO forces have bombed Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq, and Syria into oblivion. What was their justification to stop terrorism? Not even one of the 19 terrorists of September 11th was from Afghanistan, yet we invaded it. 
We were the aggressors as we went on to be in Libya, Iraq, and Syria. Unlike the Russian government, the U.S. and NATO had no personal interest in these wars. Freedom was brought to nobody, and the risk of terrorism was not reduced because destroying a young man's economy and killing his family make radicalization an infinitely more appealing prospect. These acts were not committed to save lives or stymie the outwardly expanding ambitions of a despot. Rather, they were perpetuated by the military-industrial complex and the politicians it controls. I do think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. I, I think it's more nuanced than that, but yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, the civilian body count of America's desert venture speaks for itself. Are you glad those people are dead? Did you vote to kill them? Did you waste a trillion dollars of taxpayer money to unseat the Taliban only for them to immediately regain control upon your departure? Was it you who allowed Afghani farmers to ramp up heroin production to levels never before seen? Did Lindsay blatantly lie to the American people about weapons of mass destruction, then invade Iraq on false pretenses? Was it Kyler Monroe who turned Damascus, a once thriving capital, into a pile of rubble where no child is safe? Did your dad airstrike an aid worker and several children just days before the U.S. left Afghanistan? Maybe that one's a bit tricky. However, the clear answer to most of these questions is no, it was not you. It was your government. Likewise, Russians are not responsible for the unscrupulous actions of their government. I implore you to rub the indoctrinated crust out of your eyes and alter your opinion of Russian people and separate it from the Russian government. It's clear you got a big heart, but sometimes it feels like you let your love for people be bottled up by imaginary borders that mean nothing to us as a species. This message was not meant to be condescending or judgmental and hopefully didn't sound that way. It didn't. Uh, just trying to nudge you in the right direction. Thanks for all the hours of entertainment. Bok, bok, playboy. Bok, bok. Justin. Uh, yeah, no offense taken, Justin. No offense. Um, I do, even after thinking about what you wrote, I just, I fucking hate Russian people. All of them. They're scumbags. Every man, woman, and child. Uh, no, <laughs> I, don't, I did not think that at all. Clearly, I've not done a good job of separating judgment of Russian political leaders from Russian people. Uh, no, actually, I pity what Russian citizens have had to endure for centuries. And feel terrible for how mistreated the citizens of Russia have been by their government, right? The Bolsheviks did not end up treating the average Russian person any better than the czars before them. Arguably much worse, especially under Stalin. Strong pony boy Putin has not treated his own people much better than they were being treated living under the shackles of communism before him in many ways. But the actual citizens, like the night witches themselves, so many of them, yeah, are fucking champions, right? Team Meatsack, just like the so many of the citizens of any nation are champions, I, I really do consider myself a global citizen. I don't think American babies are born inherently more or less moral or, you know, more or less protected by uh, some God than Russian babies, Chinese babies, Syrian or Afghani babies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's the culture we're born into that largely defines our early ideals and morals and a nation's government obviously influences this culture so very much. And while the government of America with its military industrial complex has done so much to harm the citizens of other nations, that's a whole can of worms, too big and nuanced for me to want to address here also, a lot of good has been done, I do believe. The government of Russia has done so much to harm its own citizens by creating a system of widespread fear, paranoia, and outlandish corruption for them to live in, right? Similar to, to China. And that is what I try to mock. The Russian government, uh, not the citizenry, although I do make plenty of jokes revolving around how just fucking bleak the lives of so many Russians uh, are, people who have appeared in various episodes, right? I've tried to make jokes about the absurdity of what these people have to deal with. Uh, you know, not how absurd they are personally. So does that make sense? I hope so. Uh, I really am on Team Humanity, Justin. I, I promise Team Meat Sack forever. And now for a silly message that we'll end on that just made me laugh so hard. Sent in by a complete and total lunatic, Jessica Else, who writes, I was having nightmares about Mao Zedong trying to force me into communism after listening to the recent suck on the CCP. 
At the same time, a real-life police officer was making a nighttime traffic stop in front of our house. Uh, <laughs> and uh, sorry, there was an earlier message that refers to Jessica sleepwalking, which is what makes sense. Jessica is a sleepwalker. And so uh, at the same time, this police officer is making a nighttime traffic stop. Jessica said, I had my hand on the doorknob with the full intention of rushing out and asking the officer to help me escape communism when my husband stopped me and put me back into bed. Thank Nimrod. The mental institution is located just down the street. And the last thing I need is to be locked up in there. God, holy shit. I love this, Jessica. For the sake of entertainment value, I wish your husband had let you head out and talk to the police. It's just so funny for me to imagine you like in your nightgown, uh, whatever you wear to sleep, like a complete panic begging them to help you escape, not even just from communism, but from specifically from Mao Zedong's Chinese communism. Just please, officers, please. Mouse spies are everywhere. Don't let me be re-educated. I just want to live free. Just help me live free, officers. I don't want to go to China. And they're like, ma'am, calm down. Ma'am, 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 you're in Nebraska. You're, you're good. Also, Mao died in 1976. You truly have nothing to worry about except your mental health. So I guess you have quite a bit to worry about. Just not China. Uh, thanks for the messages, everybody. Reminder, I, I am hoping to continue on a schedule of recording several weeks in advance. So if you send in an update about a recent episode, just know it's going to take a little while to potentially make it into the updates. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, thank you for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Scared to death. Time suck. Each week, the secrets suck for you space lizards. Please, please don't poop in your mouth this week and force a kiss on someone. It's really fucking rude to do that. And you can get them really sick. Just keep the poop out of your mouth, keep your teeth brushed, and keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. Hey, hey, baby. Uh, sorry about what I asked you to try out last week. Uh, a new plan. What if instead of uh, me shitting on your tits, what if I just I just rub my shit all over myself and I beat off while you watch and you just tell me, you know, what a beautiful boy I am. How does that? Hello? How does, hello? God, what, so weird. I got to call my provider. I, uh, I got to tell him I'm having some real coverage problems recently here in the Suck Dungeon. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.